Hello, I'm Eagle, Eagle Gardens, Eagle Gardens 1 on Instagram, and this is Fucking Talking Shit with Eagle, episode 602. Hopefully you guys have had a great day. I've got a fun guest for us tonight, Mr. Bud E. Kilowatts. You want to tell us how you're doing and where they can find you, my friend? I am doing excellent tonight, and I guess I can be found on the Instagram of Buddy Kilowatt and and uh, in the in the chats of the, the different shows on cannabis on YouTube, that's that's where I can be found. Nice, nice. Well, I can't thank you enough to come hang out with me tonight. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing your story. From what I've gathered, you've got quite a story, and I'm kind of anxious to hear it. So. Uh, First of all, hopefully you've got something to smoke on. Ah, looks like you. Yeah, might even be I'm, I've got, out. I got, I got, I got, <laughs> and got some rolled, and I'm, I'm, and I got some dabs for later. I'm good. I like you already. I like you already. So, what are you smoking on? What's what's in the paper um, at the moment? Right in these two jars. One of them is Donnie Burger. I've been growing out some Donnie Burger in the last few runs. Um, See, it's I don't know how good these things show, but the it's it's uh it's a solid uh strain and then Kush mints and yeah, those that that's what's up, up here now. I, I probably have some few others. Uh I've been uh uh on a couple years of since COVID started, uh I guess seed cracking. I must have cracked 30 40 different varieties in the last two years um so a lot of different stuff yeah but tonight donnie burger cushman's it's a couple good choices in my book <laughs> hell yeah hell yeah i'd yeah. say on that the, the, you know i've said this you know i i I used to first start smoking pot that I'd get from my dad and my best friend's dad back in the seventies. And, you know, they would have different Oaxacans and Colombians. And these weren't like the, the bricks of, you know, the later years, this was like, I guess the loose pack or whatever, really good quality. And the Donnie burger doesn't, like it's obviously not like oh it smells or tastes like Colombian no, but since I've had it, which is you know most of the year about a year, it reminds me of the high that I used to get from smoking good Colombian weed when I was younger, like the stone of it, and and I did like a leanage thing, and I know apparent Colombian, but maybe in the earlier leanage. I would bet there might be because uh, it sure reminds me of Colombian, the stone, the, you know, but yeah, that's what I got to say about Donnie Burger. So you kind of, kind of led into it a little bit there. When was the first time that you came across cannabis or used for the first well, I'm, time? I'm, 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 I'll be 59 in a couple of weeks. And probably 13, 13, I grew up with, with uh, parents like from the 60s type, I guess you would say. Um, I guess our, the overall thing, I mean, 
for a few years, how we all started, I have a younger brother too, two years younger, but they kind of had this idea, maybe, maybe, maybe I simplify it that like, well, if you're going to use drugs or whatever, you might as well just, you, yeah, it was like open policy. So like from the time I was like 13 is when I first started, like there was always a shoe box on the coffee table with weed and like, I don't think they, even, my dad called them joints. They called them numbers because he would roll like skinny uh, joints. But he's, I get, yeah, no, he sold weed. You know, he would buy like pounds or kilos and sell lids and, and, so at 13, me and my friends, I think the first time we, we like snuck some like metal pipe out in the backyard and, and uh, what we thought we, we put, put in, like I think the first bowl we smoked was like mostly seeds. Like we just took some out of the, the shoe box and, and, and I guess we got more of a headache than high, but like I maybe a few days later and then we finally the first time I think we really got high we just took one of the the joints from an ashtray and 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 that's when I felt it and at that point as a young kid in in San Fernando Valley like the Woodland Hills Topanga Canyon area at that time well I read like I, I was kind of maybe trying, well, my parents were, were obviously like unorthodox, I guess outlaw types. So like even in that, in the, in those, from like 11, 12, 13, I, I remember I had a couple of friends that, oh, I could sleep over at their house and I could go to their house after school, but they couldn't come to my house. Right. And that was like my first like indication, like, oh, and, and at that point, like, like, well, they were still just kids then, but they were like the real uppity straight kids that were my friends then. Like the, the one story I'm talking about, he became like the high school quarterback and was all that. But yeah, his parents didn't want him to come to my house. So when I started smoking weed, oh, I, I was like, became like, yeah, all my friends, like we could just smoke weed at my house. And even that created other problems because parents, other parents heard it that, oh, they, they just smoke weed over there and they would come confront my parents. And, and um, there were a lot of other drugs around, but it was just, you know, it was a different time, you know? And yeah, my parents were like out of the sixties and, and like, you know, some of their stories, like they intercepted, they, they, they had like a little crew of their best friends. This, my dad and his friend Dell and my mom and his old lady Carmen were like a crew since they were high schoolers. But, but back then Sandoz was sending like packages of acid, LSD, Sandoz to different hospitals all over different institutions for research. And now I was just a little kid when when this happened but i you know the story is that yeah they somehow through some way came up with this box that was supposed to go to a hospital in mexico and it was like enough enough that i think for almost a decade 
like they were still selling it and yeah so you know that's like my parents were were like hippie stoner outlaw types you know my mom ended up having a like full career and became a a partner and a, and a business manager in entertainment industry. My dad, he owned art gallery and he was a custom picture framer. Like they used to like hand carve the moldings and do like museum quality work. And, and um, uh, yeah, more like a craftsman. They don't, they don't even have frame shops like that anymore um that do do that kind of work but that's what he did and as a kid yeah i my first like work or labor because his uh had a workshop in the in the in, at the house where 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 a lot of them uh well i used to sand sanding like there was never endless amounts of sanding if you make picture frame molding by hand and uh, lathe it and all that a lot of sanding so i'd make my side money during that the childhood then and then we also were very involved in music they 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 have friends the friends my dad sold weed and drugs to people so like some of his friends were like musicians like the different groups like super tramp guys in chicago that guy uh, steve half half um and we'd go to concerts so like the first time i was like maybe around that same time 13 we went to like i you know jackson brown and the eagles and 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 a few concerts like that as like a family you know, and when I was 13, 14, and, and by the time I hit 15, that's when things go like uh, into hyperdrive. So, but I don't want to leave out anything from pre that. So yeah, I had, a, I had uh, access like to this day, if I could ever like buy a few spears or ounces or of of Oaxacan spears these like that was like some of the best weed I remember from my dad's uh stuff and and you know as kids what really started happening is my dad never locked anything up until maybe well, in that same period of time, it went that weed was then in this lockbox, right? And and we figured out that we could take a, a bobby, a hairpin and like uh, jiggle the lock enough and we'd get it open and we would just pinch a little and think we were cool. And I still remember the big confrontation where uh, he called me out to the shop and and he was standing there and the box was on the table. And he's in, I forget what he said, but whatever, but he had looked and could see that since we had done it so much, we had like chipped the paint around the keyhole. <laughs> and it was like obvious. And even to this day, 
you know, and in this story, I want to like emphasize a few people that really did influence me a lot. And of course, my dad, and a lot of it, you might think, well, I mean, well, I, like the things he influenced me on is like how to sell drugs, code of being an outlaw, you know, he went to prison. I used to visit him in prison as a kid. Like first memories was in Terminal Island in, in the federal prison. But I was told all the way till maybe, I don't know how old I was, that he was in the Navy. And we were visiting him in the Navy because he wore these like khakis and we'd meet on the, like we would fish with a string on a dock. I, I mean, that's what I remember. But it turned out he was in prison and he actually went into prison for acid was legal. Acid was legal. And my dad was a bartender at a pretty hot uh, Mexican place in the LA area called Escobar's. And uh, yeah, he gave a federal agent uh, a roach, like a like half of a joint. And, and they have that that's what he got arrested for and that's what he went to federal prison for now he was into a lot of other things it was one of those things where they just like yeah he was getting busted and so he did a few years and uh um i don't really know how that affected like my aunts had told me you know my mom was went through hard times and and um and, but then, uh, you know, life went on. I, I didn't know that until maybe I was 10 or 11. My dad was like a prisoner, whatever. So um, now when I'm in ninth grade and, and I'm 15 years old, uh, now my childhood involved Mike, which was my best friend and my younger brother and his best friend, Billy, and they were brothers. And we were like inseparable. And then this, this, this family moved into the area neighborhood, Scott and his older sister, Sarah. And they were from New Jersey. And they were like a little more like mature than us, realistically, like streetwise and like he was the first guy, I forget, like we were barely 15 and stuff, but somehow he had a car, got a car. And so that enabled us to do more stuff. And uh, uh, he started playing as uh, Grateful Dead records, you know, and he had this one cassette tape of some like, you know, bootleg and we had listened to it over and over and over. And he would be so excited. We, we were, we got our parents to agree that we could all go to the, the concert at Poly Pavilion in 1978, December 30th. And uh, yeah, went there. Now, when I listened to this music, when he was trying to, I didn't like it. I didn't, I, it seemed weird. I went to the concert and we waited in line. I don't know what really happened. I don't remember like officially taking a, a dose of acid, but like the show started and I was with my little brother who's two years younger than me. 
and the crowd, like it was general mission and, and the crowd, like all packed together. And I remember my little brother looking up at me, like, what do I do? What do I do? He was like smashed. And like, I was so, I was high as the show had barely started. And like, you know, back then people would dose you, you know, the merry prankster thing and that. So I assume that's what happened because it wasn't like I took anything, but I definitely got dosed at my first show. And my brother, like, I guess was hoping that we were going to like retreat back. And no, I, I like waved him off and like headed forward. And in, in the, like, you know, like, yeah, I had, it was, I, I think it, it, it's similar to like a spiritual awakening. I don't know. I, I, I that first show was, was like a whole thing because when it ended and we ended up at the parking lot, I was throwing up deathly sick because I was so messed up and high and was like telling them that I'll never go to this again. What happened? What was that? Like, uh, it took me still to this day to unpack like what I experienced because at that point there were things I saw or thought like to this day, I think that, these particular guys back then and even to this day, like have something like and it's in music that is um, like a portal to, to, to some, some other plane, you know, now it's been a long time since then. And, and, and a lot's happened in that, but at that point, that was it. And um, to speed up the story a little, Oh, by I went to another their local show in 1979, like at the same venue, Poly Pavilion, and then the, the 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 crew, the four of us, five of us, would had this like secret plan. We were going to run off to these special shows that are this historic thing that happened in 1980 where they played for three weeks straight every day. Well, not on Wednesdays at the Warfield theater in San Francisco. And this was a, over the next few experiences, this is kind of what happened. Like we would have backpacks stashed on the side yard and the secret plan. And we were going to hitchhike or take the Greyhound and we'd saved and put together whatever little monies. But then when that day would come, Mike, Billy, my brother, Scott, they would chicken out. Well, I would go. And so the first time I left, I hitchhiked from, on the 101 as like 16 years old to San Francisco without, I think I maybe had the hundred dollars saved uh, uh, and went to these shows. They were the most sold out show in the history. It was only 3000 people. It was this historic thing. They were making an album. So I didn't actually get in except three nights. And in each of those, there's like a miracle of itself. Like one night, oh, I walked the market street like every deadhead and trying to get a ticket back then, I think tickets were $8 or $8.50. I remember like, we thought the world was gonna end when they went over $10.
And we were sure it was going to end when they went over 20. But now we pay over two to 300 and then we're still going. But yeah, Bill Graham, I didn't know who Bill Graham was. Uh, beep, beep, because he used to ride a scooter around. You know, he was the promoter. So he would be out and about making sure everything was smooth. And, and boom, he handed me a ticket. And then one of the other nights, now I met up with these other kids and, and they would put speakers outside for the people that didn't get in and we'd party out there. And then we would walk or try to take bus, how late it was, to, to the Haight-Ashbury and go walk out in Golden Gate Park and find a tree and we'd sleep there. And then mosey on back down to Market Street in San Francisco for the show. Now, for the longest time, I felt like, oh man, I'm born too late because the people that I was looking up to at that point were there like in 1968 and we're at all this epic stuff and like I'd missed all that, right? But we were like trying to relive all that stuff like the hate Ashbury, the whole hippie 60s thing, which enough of it was still there that that like today the hate isn't even I don't even think no but in the 80s there was still remnants of it but um yeah like I was just a kid and there were I did it, it there was all these people that were established in in this whole hierarchy but one thing about it was it was welcoming in like a way that nothing else ever, ever is. To this day, it's that way there. So um, I, I did that and went back home. Some of this is hard for me to really remember because like, man, my life's a blur. And a lot of this was like, man, I, I did a lot of partying for, we'll get to that part. But my mom and dad at that point, my mom especially, like made it like, oh, it was a mistake that we thought that you could use drugs or, or all this. So then the rules changed. And if you were in our house, you couldn't know. And like basically changed and, and like tried to like have rules. Something I realized today, even thinking about I was going to do this is, yeah, and it, it's still in me today. And it was in me at six years old, seven years old. No, rules, no. People tell me what to do. No, no, not this guy, right? And uh, I had issues with that as a kid. Like, oh, they thought I was, what would they call it? Uh, I, no, they gave me Ritalin and said I was hyper. And, and uh, one time I would be like, need special classes because I was behind and the next thing you know my reading was like uh, uh 12th grade when I was like but I had a high IQ but uh, the truth was I only paid attention if I liked the teacher or the teacher like it all happened that first day and if somehow that person came off like an asshole then I would just reject it. I would just sit in the class and refuse to do anything. But if a teacher was cool, I'd excel. So they knew like I had this potential and it was this thing I had counselors, 
Like this actually happened. I wasn't going to get to even graduate ninth grade, right? Because of my grade. It all depended. I, I was also a skater, you know, skateboard, which was part of the, yeah, that was part of my life too as a kid. And I had a compound fracture in the ninth grade. So I had a risk and I was put into correctional PE, which this one nice old guy, Dr. Burke was the teacher there. And if you just showed up, he gave you an A. For three years, this other drill sergeant guy was the, I refused. I would take a fail in every PE. I don't even know why, because, oh, I played sports at, 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 at recess and lunch, basketball, and, and that wasn't it. It was just, well, looking back, like this guy tried to give orders and, and whatever. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. And so it was this thing where we butted heads for three years and I failed his class every time. And it came down to whether I was going to get to graduate was if Mr. Burke was going to give me the A and the other guy give me the F for the part of the C, the, the, the time that would have given me a C and I would have just barely made it that I would get to go to the graduation, which my parents, the school, the counselor, oh, that was like, that was the biggest thing to them. And, and I still remember like the night before I was supposed to go the next morning, I'm supposed to go and like walk across or whatever. I just said, no, I, I told my mom, I don't want to go. I'm not going. And, and I didn't. And that's the last time I ever went to school too. Like, by like then I went on the one little local shows maybe there was but then comes the time that I worked at this gas station for like two months and saved 164 dollars same thing like had this backpack of like stuff that was on the side yard in the bushes and I saved up 164 dollars this time and I took the the local bus all the way down to North Hollywood and jumped on a Greyhound bus to Greensboro, North Carolina, where that's where the spring tour of 81 was starting. And I think it, well, yeah, Mike, or I was never going to do these things myself. It was always like my buddies. It was like our plan. Except that every single time, like a couple times in the morning that we were leaving, they would just wouldn't show. And some of it I remember it being like out of spite. I'd be like, oh no, I'm doing it. And that's always been a thing where and it's paid off because I've been doing what I do for a long time. And my word is my bond. It, like people say that, but you know, I've I've lived that. And yeah, that that over the long haul. And once once you establish that and 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 and, and that's that's golden, it takes you a long way. But so if I said I was doing something, yeah, I did it even back then. So, and this is basically running away from home, even though my parents were like cool, right? And it was even a spite thing because this time I think it was like nine months before I ever even called them. Like, a, like 
One time I was in therapy when I was in rehab and they were digging and trying to say, well, what happened? You must have had like some trauma or something that, no, there wasn't any of that. It, like my, my parents were great. It wasn't that. It, it was, oh, grateful dad. Like, like it, like, like, yeah, by this point, I'm, 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 I'm 100% deadhead, right? And even then, like, like if you know anything about the history of the dead, yeah, it started in the 60s. But the official Grateful Dead thing didn't start to like Eileen Law, who ran the office in the in the uh, voice thing, started referring to like these people that would let, write in letters and stuff as deadheads. And that's like in 77, 78. So like even when I went to Greensboro, North Carolina, and it was like a three and a half, four day ride across our country, stopping at every every uh, Greyhound place across our whole country, which was an experience. I was just 16. Now it's maybe coming up on 17. And uh, um, when the bus got there, it was, I asked somebody and they were like, yeah, it's like two miles down the arena over there. And started making my way, walking down there. And I remember getting close and seen a lot. And this was about 10 in the morning, the day of the show. And there was like a group of cars and some people. And that was it. I walked up and I was like the new kid, you know, like here I am. And, um, you know, that, that, that like tour, which was only like three weeks, I went from there and then there was this van and, and I wish I could like actually show, well, I might pull up this picture as I talk about the, the most other influential person, BT, his name is brother Tom. And, and all these people at this so far passed away. So whatever, but unbeknownst to me, the first couple rides, there was this van that had been out on tour since the later seventies. It was like a Scooby-Doo van, a, a, a 60, uh, like that style. And it was like, why it was called the primal van is it would be the last vehicle in the lot to pick up the scragglers to go to the next show. And it, it wanted to have prime numbers of people. So like, we didn't want to go with eight people. It had to be seven. And if it wasn't that, then we had to get to 11, right? Like, even though there's times we, it didn't always work out, but that was the idea. And that's why it was called the primal van, right? Because prime numbers can't be divided. You know, we were crazy. We thought everything was special back then. Um, well, it is. So get a ride in this thing. And what it really is, kind of like an opportunity. Next thing you know, Brother Bill, who rides, is in charge of the van, is like telling you, if you want, no pressure, you could, you could, you know, we could French you some of this L and, you know, you could sell it at the, at the lot in the show, two for five, five for 10, whatever, you know, and, and, oh, don't, you can get arrested and yeah, the penalties are bad, but, and mm, I don't, during those times, I didn't actually do that. Right. But by the time we hit like upstate 
Like we did Madison Square Garden. Maybe I was like six, seven shows into the tour. The next thing you know, I'm thrust like in one day to the next from like a kid in this lot, riding in this van, having no, like nothing to being the flunky basically for BT. Some of like what enabled that to happen was I guess my upbringing, I'd already like, I'd been around more shit than, well, no, he was up to a lot. Turns out BT is like a fixture from the 60s as far as LSD and the Grateful Dead go. Like, I guess you would say, I mean, he's, he's, this is all, you know, factual that, that, you know, there's enough people that, that have written about this and documentation that's left behind um so his story basically was in the 60s and when then they made acid legal somehow he ended up in prison on like a one to life and he was in prison and and this is like a day in history that does have a lot to do with how things changed in the 70s but jerry brown which is the jerry brown before this jerry brown or whatever he signed this thing called the Indiscriminate Sentencing Act or whatever in 7777. That's the date they signed it. It basically made it you couldn't sentence people like one year to life. They had to have a sentence. And that day they released a ton of people from, from the California prison system. BT, one of them. This is in 77. So by the time I'm 81, oh, he's back. He's he, like he had already just finished the 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 um, dragons. And if anybody remembers blotter from like that era, there was pretty common blotter across the country was dragons, and they came in different colors. And and how BT would basically do it is any of the designs he would have like I guess million, maybe five million of the blank paper printed and, and uh, so many of each color. And we'd go through one color and then onto the next, onto the next. So, and it, by 81, we had a, a design called the ganja, which even back then, cannabis, weed, like, yeah, I always wondered why we called it the ganja, but, you know, cause that means weed. Today, that would be like weed. But back then we called this acid design, the ganja. My actual uh, little icon thing, that, that thing with the legs, that's the, the ganja. And uh, in those years, the, the years that, that this went great was 81 to 87. 87, yeah, we got indicted by the DA for distribution of LSD. And try to concise this story. Like, yeah, I was BT's right hand. We went everywhere. Like, we partied like there was no tomorrow. Uh, the amount of drugs that we had and, 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 and used, we made so much money that anybody that came around the Grateful Dead world trying to sell any kind of drug worthy always found us because we always had money and BT would buy anything. I don't care if it was fucking quarter pound of the best opium, uh, ounces of mescaline from Texas, uh, all the best cocaine, like you know, the reality, these years were filled with cocaine, right? Weed was always there, but 
like 80s, especially Ungrateful Dead. And so I become Dudes Funky. We finish off that tour. In the beginning of this other tour, like a couple shows in, we would get this information somehow and know what hotels they were going to be staying at. This is back in like 81. So we would book ourselves on at those hotels. So we would be like at the hotel, but we wouldn't be on their floor. Or we would just be there. But we were at the Hyatt something or something like that in St. Paul, Minnesota. And it was middle of the day. We had just maybe gotten there and BT was up in the room. Like part of our whole thing was, yeah, we would rent an extra room that nobody would know about everywhere we went. And we'd go in there and tear up the carpet in the corner and we'd stash at the beginning part of the tour. Well, we'd go out there with like 100, 200,000 hits of acid. They were all in the envelopes, self-addressed stamped. And our sheets were 200 wide. So it was those normal number 10s. And part of our like, we thought we were so smart that if you self-addressed, stamped, addressed, it never, we never had this, but I know of somebody that was arrested and the local police opened up the mail. Now this might not work anymore in court, but back then it did. You needed a postal search warrant to open up mail. You couldn't just open up mail, right? So we used to, I used to spend so much time addressing all these fucking envelopes and putting them in there. But we would put those under the, the in this room. Then we'd not go back to, it was like our little secret thing. Because we would party, cops would come, all kinds of shit would happen the night after the show. But we never wanted to, you know, the biz was the biz. And most of that started to be how you were getting all this money around. Because to be honest, back then there was no TSA, there was nothing. But like, yeah, if you ran into local pigs and out and getting a ticket, or they would just take money. Like, like you could probably hide the drugs, man. If they found any money, they found 10, 20 grand stacks. Oh, they were just taking the shit from you. And, and so, yeah, we used to keep it in our shoes and each pocket. And like, you could only carry so much of it. And um, we'd do that. And then, oh, I'm going through the lobby and sitting in the, in the bar that's just barely open is Phil Lesh, which maybe I'll just preface this. Back in 1978, when I'm at my first show and I'm tripping balls, I, from moment one, am attracted to this guy, Phil, and bass. And so I remember like realizing that like 99% of the crowd was paying attention to Jerry, and maybe a little bit of Bob. Like Phil was like the bass player, right? So from day one, I was like part of this thing that developed or is called the Phil Zone. And these are the people that are like Phil fans. Phil, yeah, we were always just a few, especially when Jerry was alive. But we're there. And, and so there's Phil in the bar and he's cutting up like, like straws into little snorters and putting them in his pocket 
as I kind of walk up to him as a nervous kid and hey, hi, whatever. And had the like wherewithal to be like, yeah, we're in room. And he says, hey, write that down. And, and somehow we, uh, whatever it was, on a little piece of paper, we wrote down the room number. And I go rushing up to BT going, yeah, I met Phil. He's, he's going to come up to our room. He's like, oh, that's going to be great. Now, BT, he was chasing Jerry. And you have all the drugs that Jerry wanted. Because you wanted to hang with Jerry. You, you, there was a certain thing. But, but the rest of the band, they, they, they did everything. Like Jerry was a junkie. So if you want to fucking hang with Jerry, you, you did that. That was BT's thing. But any of them would be great. So make this short. We're basically expecting dude to come to the room. And we're trying to tell other people that normally rage in our room. Hey, not tonight, not tonight. And so like after the show, one hour goes by, two hours go by, three hours, and, and BT's like, yeah, no, nah, you bullshit. Like he used to doubt me and think, yeah, he ain't coming. And sure enough, like 3.30 in the morning, boom, 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 boom. And like Phil came in with like four Heinekens. Like he was drinking Heinekens, like two in his hand, just going, going, going. And that was the first time I started doing Coke with him. And we partied till the morning and, and, and off he scattered, and then it became a thing where we had laminates and passes on his list. It wasn't like some kind of, it was just an understanding. But like our spot was at the drum solo. Like there was the people that, that whipped him up before the show. There was the people at the set break. We were, we were, we were his slot at the drum solo, which is a part in the show where the drums go and the bass and guitar have like 10 minute, 15 minute break. And so, yeah, we'd rush back there and whoop, whoop, you know, and that was what we did. And that led, now, there were two major acid families, us, which we were the Rose Crystal and what was called the White Purse white perforated paper. They kept their paper blank. They were super like safe, we'll say. We were super flamboyant. BT's whole thing was bigger. Like, so we used to print t-shirts with our designs on them. They're like collectors. Like, like sometimes you'll find them on eBay and they're selling for like thousands of dollars. Every single one of those t-shirts was given to whoever through my hands. Because we, for certain occasions, we had ordered a hundred shirts and they would be printed with the design and something on the back. Like I saw rainbows at Red Rocks. Well, that was in 1981 for the first time, instead of it being either red, blue or, or solid color, our acid, the sheets were four color. It, it, and they were, each sheet was different. And they, so they were printed like that, rainbows. And that was when we released those at that, at that show. So um, unbeknownst to him, because like everybody just used t-shirts like paper towels, right? You, you wore them after the show, you might just leave it at the hotel or you might keep it if you liked it, but you just wore a new show and a lot of tie dyes and stuff. Oh yeah. 
if you don't wash those things good, next thing you know, you're like tie dyed your skin and the shit won't come off for like months. But shirts were like dime a dozen. And somehow I gave Phil some of these shirts. And sure enough, at like really critical shows, like when they went to Europe at London at Wembley, there's, yep, there he is with, with the Gonza shirt on um, at, 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 uh, um, oh, a few different shows, four or five shows over a little period of time. Well, that made us official Grateful Dead acid. That was it. Like if we didn't already have a lock on the thing, a member of the band wearing a shirt, that was it. Well, that didn't sit well with like a lot of that. Yeah, I, I can't get into all the politics of the tour and shit, but bottom line is ultimately the people behind that whole drug circus has been the Hells Angels, HA, the whole way. So like where the crystal came from and who was really like making sure that everything went smooth, with that and yeah like we were like told to rein it in basically right this is like getting into maybe 83 84 now this point holy cocaine i the way i look remember it is the first couple tours we'd go out there and yeah people won't believe this but the band people that were in this bubble, we wouldn't sleep at all. No way. Because once you're up for a couple of days, you don't just get to sleep for a couple hours and pop up and keep going. And the way these tours were scheduled, they don't schedule tours like this anymore. Man, there was no time. Like, like, don't know. So you just did it. And basically, we just keep going. More coke, more coke, more coke. Which, which, the first few years would would be the tour would end. You'd make your way back to wherever you're going to hole up for a couple months till the next tour, usually the Bay Area, sometimes New York. I, I lived in the Chelsea Hotel a lot and did things there and, and up in Marin and in, in different places in the city where we would do business, basically. Because out on tour, we would recruit mainly people from colleges and we would front them Whatever they paid for, we'd give them two, three times that much. Because one thing about psychedelics, the business of it, it's like you're always needing new, fresh people. Like a, a, a little pocket will, will get into it and buy for a while, but it's not something that continues on for years. So you're always searching out new people. And we used to play at a lot of colleges, Duke University and... Uh, places, Wisconsin, all these, I don't remember the colleges, but yeah, that was part of BT's thing. We'd recruit kids, guys in college and start sending them like express mails of like 5,000 hits and whatever. Back then, like if you got five or 10,000 from us, yeah, 30 cents was basically the price per hit, you know, and they went for on the street, at least a dollar each and up or whatever. So a lot of, a lot of people made money in that thing. Like that was the beautiful thing about the whole Grateful Dead thing in the, in the, in the blotter was, yeah, it supported like this whole circus for years, you know, and uh, that party raged on. And I could probably go on for five hours of all the different party and 
band stories and piles of cocaine stories and everything that goes along with it. But I don't think everyone wants to hear that. But the one thing I'd say was, I was trying to say is the first couple years, my experience was that we'd party for like a month straight. And then I would sleep and eat and get normal for the month or two before you did it again. And then somewhere in like 84 was the first time I showed back up on tour in worse shape than when it ended. And, and then became a thing where the shows was like a hindrance to the kind of partying you really wanted to do because, oh, you were in weird towns and you run out of sh different shit and like you just look forward to holing up in the city with partying like so the drug addiction finally like got to the point where um yeah it wasn't fun anymore that part and and even if i remember i, I don't have this book i wish i did but my brother who did finish school had this 10th grade health book that had this pages of drugs on both sides of column and they were like bad addictive drugs and semi-okay drugs. And it was like cannabis and mushrooms and, and, and cocaine. And on the other side was like heroin and PV, PCP and all this. First years of my cocaine life, society or people, we, it, it wasn't like now everyone knows how addictive and crazy it is. But there was these years where somehow we didn't think that until it hit you. So it happened like like I didn't know it could make you that way until all of a sudden. Right. And then that became the worst part of my life for like 10 years. The Jones, like I, 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 I couldn't get off cocaine for a long time. Right. Even as I first started growing in 89, like still like cocaine was still a problem to me. I, I went to my first rehab and 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 uh uh, when I was 25 years old and my mom and all her connections got me into this program that like also had the contract with the NBA and with GM and with the uh, musicians unit. So like my first roommate, when I got there was this guy, Alonzo something, or he was, he was like a star in the Lakers at that time. And then he moved, and then my next roommate was Ben Montench, who he's the keyboard player for the Heartbreakers. And we were roommates. And then my last roommate was this guy, William Bedford. He was like seven foot something. And while we were in the rehab, they actually brought him his championship ring. He was part of the Detroit Pistons. Rodman, when he was normal, came to visit him there. And he was my roommate and he couldn't read or write or anything. Now he graduated Mississippi state, you know, basketball. But when we were going through the rehab and, and going to like meetings and telling our stories. Yeah. Holy moly. This guy told me would tell stories about like, you know, like, pretending to sprain his ankle in the first quarter to go to the locker room and smoke as much crack as he could to come back out. And, and 
he got a, it's, this is all true. He got a ring for like three games he played that season and was like, back then they didn't have the, the same drug thing or whatever. But, and you can look him up. Yeah, he had the saddest ending because he's the first player to end up in that drug thing where they banned him for life. And he was like seven foot something and couldn't read or write. And then, and I don't know exactly, but I heard years, years ago or yeah, he, he died like real young, but so I was in rehab and, you know, not to, to this day, some of the things that were embedded in me in the 12 steps, which was always a conflict because back then they weren't even open to like smoke weed. When it got down to like me being sober. Oh, that's when I realized weed. Oh, I was, there was no question. That wasn't the problem. I had a problem with cocaine. I had a problem with this. I, we wasn't the problem. So sometimes I wouldn't, I, that would be hard to be like really taking a 30 day chip and a 90 day chip. Cause like, oh, I did stay off the drugs. And even that experience had to do with celebrity crap too, because my sponsor was this guy. He just died last year. One of the best Hammond B3 players from Kansas City, the impeccable Mike Finnegan, right? Who he's played with everybody, mainly Bonnie Raitt over the last decades, but Cross Stills Nash. You need someone on the, on the Hammond. This is the guy. He was my sponsor. He sponsors David Crosby. There's this thing in LA called the Musicians Meeting which is like the hippest thing. And, and so like my sobriety was like based on that, right? And so like 18 months into that, yeah, I, I did coke and, and then maybe had a couple other run-ins with sobri uh, rehab, but rehab was when I stopped using, it just happened one day. It had like all that stuff. I don't know. It didn't work for me. It, 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 it taught me a lot, though. And some of the like weird things we used to say over and over in those meetings, I still like use weird parts of them in my life, like principles. Like even this one that they say, the concept is like, even if you're an older alcoholic, you got to help the new alcoholic. You can't keep what you don't give away. It's kind of their thing. And like, so if you're sober 20 years and you're not helping the guy that's walking in the door, you know, that's the, the idea. Well, I've taken that to, well, yeah, you can't keep what you don't give away, literally. So like, yeah, I, I give a lot. Like you don't ask me or don't expect it, but sometimes like, yeah, I just like to do that because yeah, I, I've been pretty lucky considering how crazy I am to not like have as much as I've had consistently for like all these years, you know, because we'll get to the point where, yeah, weed growing. So like the dead thing, okay, in 87, I'm at my grandma's house in uh, uh, Studio City. This and this knock, is the knock, only knock. time I'm going to interrupt. No rush. No rush. I and everybody else am loving this. No more shortcuts. Okay. Like okay. that joint. Okay. Yeah. And I'm going to make another this. cup of coffee. And, and, yeah. 
and and because it will it'll be really easy because I think it is important sometimes like a visual and I just have to go to my desktop and I'll pull up this picture there he is and I can turn this around this is this has been fascinating, by the way. Thank you so much for sharing. And this is the last time I'm... Okay. <laughs> this, this is who is BT. And he had the Hawaiian heritage. And, yeah, this is probably taken in, like, 1981 or two. So that's BT. Um, so... Grandma's, which is rare, like most holidays, funerals, other people's weddings, I was on tour. The only time I ever left tour was for my grandma's funeral. And that's because I was the oldest of the grandkids. And in her will, she like, like I had to ride in the limo and it was like three quarters of the way into this tour in 1982 and i had to fly in a propeller plane into jfk and barely get back to to la for um um this funeral i mean so loaded so much cocaine doing the cocaine the whole way <laughs> Riding in the, the thing. Well, that night is this epic show called the Barnaby Coast. And it's like one of the rare, back then, like you never knew when Owsley would show up. Oh, you knew when he was there, right? Like even a few times I was in his presence, like he was like in the same vicinity, like your hair and your arm would raise. Like this guy had energy, man, bear, you know? And, uh, Bear was at this show. Well, if Bear came to a show, things got pretty electric and psychedelic. Like, you know, you, you can match up these, like, psychedelic shows that happened to, oh, yeah, that was the year Bear was there. Because you know who Bear is. He's, he's, he, he made all the acid in the 60s and made the best acid and was also the dead sound man and took all the acid money and bought all the best equipment and built the craziest sound systems in the 70s. And he, he's, he's a person worthy of uh, exploring. He, his old web thing is still up. It's called bear.org, where he has these essays about weird stuff. But you also realize when you read it how ahead of his time he was that like he's been dead for a while and yeah he, he saw it all but like he had weird things like he only ate meat he hated vegetables <laughs> like it would be hard to say yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna do what bear did uh, and and he didn't die from all that he lived in Australia in a cheap crash and he died but this epic show that was the earthquake space where where Phil came out and and recreated the Barnaby Coast earthquake from 19 or whatever in San Francisco destroyed San Francisco it was like the 
anniversary of it in Baltimore. I, I always amazed me. Why did we celebrate Barnaby Coast in hot? Well, celebrate the earthquake that killed everybody in San Francisco. But and, and you can find all these on YouTube, all this music. But I miss that. And for a person that went to every show. So at this point, I don't miss any more shows. Like my life is centered around being at every show from like 1981 through 87, for sure. Now they went to Europe one time and yeah, we didn't have our shit together with the passports and all that. And that was like an epic thing that I still think to this day in 1981, the dead had this European tour that had issues with like some of the bookings. And there was these shows in Germany that got canceled. And on a, a fluke, they flew to Amsterdam and had to rent equipment. And because their equipment was in the tour and you couldn't just take it to Amsterdam. It had like paperwork and stuff. So on rented equipment, they played in the Milky Way in Amsterdam in 1981. Like this is like that's a that, that's a coffee shop. That's the weed place. The Milky Way. The that the, that stuff was barely existing, but it did exist. And so I I always wonder how much you know because the hippie trail. A lot of deadheads that I know, like they would travel through India or they would like. And during times off on dead tour, you'd find that deadheads did weird shit, like go to Pakistan and India and Afghanistan. Back then you could do that, the hippie trail. And a lot of them were seeking like spiritual whatever, but, oh, I know some seeds came through that. Even Steve Parrish, who is the Jerry's uh, old roadie, he has his own cannabis brand up in the Bay Area. And the strain he was promoting this year, the stories on that, that when him and Jerry were in Egypt in 78, when the dead played Egypt at the pyramids, they had the same cab driver for the two weeks they were there. And they were asking the guy for uh, seeds. The guy misunderstood every time or whatever, kept bringing him weed. But then on the last day before they left, he brought him this bag of seeds. That's the seeds that has now been crossed into whatever. That's the strain that, wait, I have a jar of it. I can at least say the name of it. I don't know how much of the story I buy, but it sounded good. Um, it's called, what's it called? But supposedly it's seeds that came from Egypt. In, in 78, what is this shit called? Egyptian mystery, yeah, Egyptian mystery seeds or something was what the metric, you gotta remember this went through metric. So they must've said, yeah, it's, it, it's, um, wait. And I don't know if anyone even knows who Big Steve Parrish is, but yeah, this is this is the cross. So the 1978 Egyptian mystery seeds were given to him by some cab driver back when they were there. Sounds good. Um, 
it smoked pretty good. So uh, I might have lost my train of thought. Um, well, okay, we get indicted. I'm at my grandma's house and knock, knock on the door. There's federal agents. My whole family's there. And they're basically just served me with a indictment or subpoena. Subpoena. It was subpoena. Okay. I'm like, oh, shoot. And next thing you know, I hear, oh, yeah, they have BT. He's in jail. Okay. My mom gets some lawyer. This really expensive guy. I remember, he had a red Ferrari at his office, and I forget what she paid. But like, he couldn't really help me because when I was going to have to go out to New Orleans to the Fifth District of Louisiana for this, you might have. Someone called me. Are we back? I can hear you. Yeah, yeah. we're back. I can hear um, you. Yeah, I, I declined the call. But um, so when you're in a grand jury, you can't have a lawyer. You can talk to a lawyer outside the grand jury. So my mom hired this guy. Plan was, well, you go out there and then if you got any questions, you call me. Well, and I've left out my marriages where there's three First marriage, I'll just quickly, is Dolores. Now, she was my mom's hairdresser and was, was um, 20 years older than me. And somehow she used to cut my hair when I'd come back from like tours. My mom would take me there and my hair would be like crazy from a month or two of wildness. And one thing led to another, we got married. It was really a drug marriage. And actually, when I went to that first rehab is when our thing kind of went their own ways. And then I had this other wife from El Salvador, Sylvia, and I was a stepdad. And that was these years that I was sober and tried to play better, like not so crazy. And then Jerry died and I gave up all that in one day and went back to my life. and then my real marriage of 20 years to Sabrina, then I met her in 1998. So those are my relationships. And, you know, I want to kind of preface, I was going to say this at the beginning, my life has like these three segments. And I kind of always wish, today I realize I wish I was able to tell the story pre the tragedy, because, you know, like three years ago, Sabrina got murdered. And I'm not, I'm not the same person anymore. And I'm trying to get through it, but unless you're a victim of something like that, you have no idea, and it's fucked. And even though all these years are going by, it's not getting any better. And I don't know how to Sorry. live without her. But let me get my shit back together because we'll get to her because she's important. Really important. Hey. Sorry. So in 87, get indicted and I go out and it was like old home week on the French quarter. You know, when I flew out there, they scheduled me to come in one morning at the federal building. And that night I was out, you know, bar hop in the French quarter. 
and I recognize so-and-so and I recognize so-and-so and we're all like see each other, but like are so freaked out. We won't even acknowledge, you know, everyone there for the same reason. And, oh, my lawyer found out that he wasn't actually arrested for acid. He was arrested for robbing a bank like 7-15-77, like a week from the time they let him out of jail. Him and this other, eh, you know, historic deadhead named Katie, Katie May. They took her mom's motorhome and went to the bank in Wells Fargo in downtown San Francisco and robbed it. Now, no one would ever believe that if you knew BT, like, but, you know, when he told me the story, that was like his come up. Like he wanted, you know, he got out of prison and you couldn't get back in the game unless you had whatever thousands. And that was how he got the first chunk of money to get back into the LSD game. And even now that, you know, a lot of people have talked and we know all what happened. And even some of the times when cops would bust us in Des Moines, Iowa and, and, and have us with so much stuff and money and they would let us go and different things that happened over the years, like they were never after him. They were after his connection and like the feds and the DA. Yeah. Like the DA kept, they knew they could arrest him anytime for the bank robbery, but they were trying to, lead him lead to to um the connection and like i already told you where the connection lies so like now we're so so i'm i'm still just a kid 87 so well maybe i i i was in my my emotional or like how i lived i lived in a bubble so i didn't face reality at all like i lived in grateful dead land and 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 so in 1987, um, when I'm being indicted, we're started with a subpoena, grand jury. The first interview, um, these two DA officers are off on the side. They kind of look like hippie deadhead types, but, but now they got the suit on. And there's this other guy behind the desk. And they start like asking me basic questions and the guy behind the desk would show me a picture so-and-so show me that and i was like trying to like say i yeah yeah i went to these shows and i made up a bunch of bullshit and then he said oh you want to i want to show you something and they had the side room with this like big old banquet table and it was like six to 10 inches all the way across tape recordings, photo packages, Western Union receipts. We used to pick up all this money under fake names at Western Union and all over. We, we had all these things we thought we were so slick. Turns out they, we weren't that slick. They were just trying to get above us, um, which is how things like that work. <laughs> um, and I kind of looked quickly, saw a couple things that led, you know, I knew what time that was. 
And when we went back and sat back at the desk, he pounded on the desk. And he said, in the most Southern draw accent ever, he was the, his name is Douglas Frazier. He's probably somewhere in politics today because back then he was the fifth district of Louisiana's district attorney. And a lot of the certain drug cases went through this fifth district. But he pounds on the table and he says, son, do you ever want to be free? And like, holy shit, my whole life flashed in front of me. Like everything my dad taught me, everything was 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 right there. I mean, they were going to make me rat. It wasn't even they were going to make me. They explained that they can give me limited use immunity. And, and, and then I couldn't. Like they had me. And I that's when I said, oh, can I call? I call this lawyer guy and I, I tell him and he's like, I met, this is this high price fancy guy. He's like, oh, you're, you're, you're in way over, like you're in over my head. I don't know what to tell you. Cause I, I explained and it, it, he's like, okay. Well, basically we started going through things. Like this was like prep for the grand jury. And they were like starting to make a record and ask me more particular questions and a more of a timeline. And, but it wasn't the grand jury, but like in my thing, I was breaking code. I was like having to say things, right? And like, sometimes they'll put you in position. Like it, it's hard to explain. I'm no fucking rat. And, 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 and that was this weird spot. And I was like, really, Another thing, oh, I was in way over my fucking head. All of a sudden, I like we weren't talking about like you'll get out in a couple year type shit. So to kind of wrap this up, it turns out that this girl, fuck off for Christina, that was one of his little sidekick chicks, she did enough better job of telling the story than I did. Plus. I don't drink. I used to drink, but uh, alcohol, I'm crazy as it is. So I'll call me. I haven't drank in like 20, 30 years because, but back then I drank. And New Orleans was all about drinking. And even back then, they only served this crappy whatever rum, Bacardi rum. And I used to like to drink some other kind of rum. And I knew that if you bought their own bottles and gave it to the stewardess, they would serve you your own. So on the flight home after this, okay, so all this happens and basically the grand jury, couple people got to go in front of the grand jury, but I didn't get to go in front of the grand jury. And now they were taking a recess and they were sending me back home and they'll contact me when it's time to come back and go in front of the grand jury. And basically because of the fifth, wait, the uh, limited use immunity, and they hadn't really done any of this. They just threatened it all. Okay. I remember guys really charge. The main charge is bank robbery. And they're not trying to give him more charges. They're trying to give, we'll just make a name, Freddie, the charges. And they had pictures of Freddie. They knew, like, they, you know, that was the one face I was like, no, I never seen that guy because I knew you didn't want to know that guy. Right. But that's obviously what the case was about. Um, so I get on this plane and I still remember in my blackout that 
there was a misunderstanding. And when she said, well, I can bring you Bacardi. I said, no, but I had two bottles. She said, no, you drank them both. And, and we were like, just getting ready to land. And I went into LAX and my mom and dad were picking me up. And when I see my mom and dad, I guess I had my a nervous breakdown or like an official psychotic episode because right there in LAX, I like had a, I only know like I'm in a blackout by this point. Bottom line, I come to in one of those 72 hour holds in a, like a mental place, like strapped to a gurney. I think they had given me like whatever sedative or something. And I had a broken arm and, and messed up shoulder. And yeah, the LA, the LA, they weren't cops. That was part of it. They were like, now if you get in trouble at LAX, it's actually cops. Like they're part of the LAPD. This was like security, but whatever. Yeah, somehow whatever happened, and my mom and dad, my dad, well, basically, when I seen my dad, I like this, I couldn't even be, yeah, I like, I knew what he was going to say. And, and yeah, I was in over my head. And my life was at stake. And uh, my freedom. And uh, yeah, I freaked out, whatever. And my lawyer did use that where they said, I've, I, somewhere I have some of this paperwork in my craziness, but basically that the pressure that they were putting me under whatever, um, and I'm not mentally stable for further interrogation and all this stuff, which none of that's like, if they're going to do you, they're going to do. But time went by and turns out all of a sudden I hear, oh, BT struck a deal. They sentenced him. And yeah, he got like 25 to life or something for the bank robbery. The bank robbery. And that ended. It just ended just like that. The, the, uh, the um, um, indictment and all that. Um, now, the people that did, have, did go and, and talk, oh, that paperwork became relevant because BT got access of it even though it didn't matter they didn't make no charge on it oh those people ratted like you know but whatever so now he's in Terminal Island and I I'm living at my mom's house the whole scene the Grateful Dead scene has like shunned especially me even when Phil finds out that he unbeknownstly was wearing these shirts. Oh, Jesus Christ, man. And it just was like, oh, I still went to shows, but I mean, I was shunned. Like no one, like 10 foot pole. No, they weren't going to even look at me with the hundred foot pole. And so like everything went from poop to poop, right? But the music still went on and, and uh, I didn't no longer go on tour to every show. I was like a weekender or I, I went to all the shows west of uh, Colorado. It's a lot. Like in the end, yeah, because like when you add up my Grateful Dead shows, I went to 535 Grateful Dead shows. During that period of time, 
there was probably, uh, I don't know, Jerry Band shows. That was like, you know, lots of those and this and that. And, and even since Jerry died, I continue to go to 50 to 70, 100 shows a year. Maybe not 100 anymore. Um, I, I live my life with music. But dude's in prison. Now, we sent him like letters soaked in like pure crystal. I smuggled in me at the visiting in Terminal Island. And he told me his whole story, blah, 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 and the bank robbery, and da, 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 da. And years went on, and he had some job where he had access to a phone. And sometimes I'd get phone calls, and, and he would ask me to do favors and different shit. And uh, yeah, when he got out of prison, he had emphysema and AIDS and all this shit. He died like a couple years later. Um, it was sad. Like I last saw him at like a show in in uh, at Shoreline, in like the '90s, and even the whole Grateful Dead thing. So, like in the first 1981 and all that, the the real family, the the kids, we were just kids, tour rats. We there was like 50 of us, 100 of us, maybe some tours, the summer tour, or oh, if we went through certain east coast we'd pick up few but there was just a few and then as the years went on and then came you know they have a whole history of like oh touch of gray or whatever they hit some album and the next thing you know basically from like an insider's point of view by the time it got to like late 80s 90s deadheads were not like what you saw in the parking lot and the vendors those were gypsies those weren't deadheads anymore. Well, I mean, we were still mixed in there, but real gypsies had taken over, like saw the opportunity. They didn't go to the shows. They vended and they were good at vending and they created that big shakedown and they made a lot of money. But like by, from my perspective, the scene was over and fucked up and like, um sort of it's weird the parallels are very similar because you know i feel the exact same way about cannabis like oh so now we have legalization it's like basically the touch of gray moment where all of a sudden and and things just get worse from there because that's how i feel about legalization it's, it's a trap and and i it, ultimately i was all for it because people shouldn't go to jail and and all that, but what it's become is is unacceptable. The writing's on the wall, and everybody that cares about cannabis should reject it 1,000%, not get in bed with the establishment. And I'll leave it at that, because it's the same establishment that has fucked up everything forever. So why would you think they're not going to fuck this up? And you're going to trust your whole everything, your living, your to them? No, I'm not. I'm luckily old enough that I'm hoping to slide out of here before the real repercussions of what's happening hit. But even what's brought me out of my shell is the fact that some of this stuff is going down so fast. Like I, I had these visions that this is where we were corporate and it was going to go. But I thought it wouldn't be in my lifetime. I thought it would take them 20, 30 years. These, they're they're going to get this shit wrapped up in a decade. Big, big, 
farming, tobacco, whoever, Monsanto, Bayer, whoever you want to call it. They're gonna they're gonna own this whole thing nationwide, international. Like, and I wish it was different, but you know. But all right, back to the story. So that was a shift in life. And oh, 87, well, 88, I'm in rehab, my 25th birthday. Um, then became a thing where I drug addict and would binge and and hustle and became like a, I'd get kilos of blow fronted to me and live in LA and sell blow, but mostly I'd end up doing all the blow and owing godly amounts of money and getting somehow pulling that. It was just this fucking craziness for a few years. And then I actually started working for a big grower. This guy that came out here from Florida, it wasn't like me. He was all about money and he was trying to play like, he liked going to all the Hollywood parties and his, newest bmw and say he was a writer and try to like meet celebrity females basically and grew weed to have the money he didn't he didn't even smoke weed but he had this giant ass house and he had somebody else or whatever by the time i started working for him and in some ways i didn't know much i had trimmed one time in humboldt in like 80 something where BT was like, I was so strung out that it was more like he sent me up there hoping I'd clean up for a couple of weeks. And it was at this trim thing on BLM land way back when, when outdoor weed was fucking dank. But um, I didn't really have any grow experience at all. But when I started working for this guy, What's that saying when you, like you talk your way into doing something like fake it till you make it, right? And no one knew about it. There was like, like this is like 89, but, but our method, his method, we probably had 30, 40, this giant ass room in this giant ass mansion, parabolic lights. And we used four inch rain gutter strips and this elaborate thing with fucking saw horses and even trying to balance the, the rain gutters because if the plants went in, it would twist the thing. And we had all this braces and this, and we would find in Penny Saver, like 200 gallon acrylic um, uh, fish tanks. And we would, that would be where the water from the, um, and I guess this would be NFT, but not really, but because we didn't run water constant. We had it on timer and it was water and it would just guess ebb and flowing away. It wasn't like get very high. It would just flow underneath. And even then we were in Rockwell. And uh, the first time I ever touched anything was in Rockwell. And to this day, it's still 100% Rockwell. My main thing, I use other things, but, but, uh, so started working for him and one thing led to another. Basically, I did all the work. And what I do is I get a ton of money and then I go on Coke binges. And then it was like a thing. And, and then shows. And reality was, I even then started 
first time I started thinking about, wait, why do I need to work for these people? I do this myself. But like getting the rent, getting and 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 even something that 60 days, 90 days, that was like an eternity. Right. I remember like thinking having a grow thing for a year was like an eternity. You know, but it worked for him and then go on these binges for a couple years. Got better and we got better. Like we didn't we upgraded and changed and got to trays and and even when it comes to back then he had somebody that he could buy like hundreds of clones. They were like already like what we call teens today, but they were clones then. And he would always tell me, give me the few that we could pick from. And I remember like going, oh, well, get the skunk or get this. And he'd be like, oh, no, those ones stink. We're going to go with Cali Orange. We grew Cali Orange, California Orange or whatever it was for those years, mainly because he didn't, everything was just money to him. So he didn't even smoke weed. And it was all right. Back then, it, if it was green, you could get and the prices we used to get for weed and the demand for it was so crazy, but that's what we grew. And even back then, he didn't pick the better strains that stunk because yeah, that, that's how you got busted. So we grew the one that didn't stink the most. And that was back then Cali Orange, or at least that for us. So that went on for a while. And that guy actually in the end, years later, is the and guy that gives me my initial money from when me and Sabrina finally built our own growth back in 99. But uh, that was hard because him, another person, Scott, another, like my, I, like when people had me down and out and, and I'm like an asset, like I'm a good flunky. I'm a good, like, I know how to get shit done. I, 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 you don't have to tell me. I'm like perceived shit. And like, so I was like more valuable to these guys down than I would be if you gave me a fucking shot of my own. And after a few years, that became an issue. Like, like where I felt that way amongst my homies. Because like, yeah, after, with the Jason thing, then it turned into I had like Scott, who just passed away like a month ago. Chris, who got murdered in a whole other thing a few years ago, and, and Cutter, who's who who lives in my guest house, is still my old homie. No, he doesn't do much for me, and I don't even know why I keep him around, but hey, he's my old homie from like fucking 30, 40 years ago. What am I going to do? Kick him out? Um, but um, that became... We were growers, okay? And Scott McGregor, he just passed away of a heart attack. He was a couple years younger than me. It's so crazy, he passed away in the community. He he was a singer in a Jerry cover band that was popular. So a lot of people love Scott and, and uh, he taught me a lot. He's another one of the people that I'd have to say, oh, big influence. We had a different way of thinking and even our hustle back then oh we had our own little growth but it was so hard to, with a landlord and and keeping it long term our main way to make money even way back then we would take 
we would we would say it's like a third, 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 a third for the bills, a third for you, a third for me. And I'll teach you how to grow or I'll manage to grow. You have a spot and we'll take a third of the money. That'll cover your rent and whatever. You keep a third and I take it. Okay. And many deals like that. And a lot of them went great. Right. Scott, his idea, there's one part I left off. Like I'm more of the type from the beginning, go, well, all right, for one year. And then you could either keep me or you could just go on because I knew what would happen. I already saw it when Scott was working these hustles before I started, because he was like a little ahead of me in that, that he would like get people for life. So like a year or so later when they like were like, why do I need this guy? He doesn't even come here anymore. I fucking I just give him money every month or two. And and even though like nobody did this just with strangers, we were all homies, like tight. That created like people that had known each other and were bros would end up having big conflict because one was trying to to like squeeze on him. And I didn't set deals up like that. I realized even people that worked for me, I realized real early that somebody that works for you most likely wants to be you and sits and looks and says, fuck, this is pretty easy. What the fuck does he do? He's got the little thing and he does it. And then I, people do a lot. Cause like a lot of times, yeah, I've sourced things out. I mean, I've done my share of trimming. I've done my share of it all. And when push comes to shove, I'll do what I have to. But I also pay people to do shit. And that becomes, yeah, because from the beginning, I can't be someone that's just going to be stuck growing and, and can't travel and can't enjoy music. And so I set my whole thing up is that I can go and like ultimately to, to afford to be able to go to shows is why I started growing. Not because I needed to feed my face. I needed money to go to tour in, in the, in the early nineties. And and, but the problem was 60 day cycles and like next thing you know, everything's going great. And now you're going to ditch off for a few months and you think you had someone to watch your shit. But like next thing you know, when you come back, they're like, hey, I don't know, but I don't need you anymore. And I understood that. And I kind of always played that differently. And we also had another fundamental difference. These guys would rent the literally in the lowest rent fucking gutter house they could find or apartment or whatever, where from 98, oh no, we rented like, we went the other way. Like our first grow house was on 385 acres and and uh, we paid serious rent. But I always looked at it that the, the plants pay the rent, the bitches pay the rent. So like, they might as well have a nice place. And there's a lot of benefits, like a couple of our really nice places that went long time. You no one would ever think anyone grew in a house that expensive in this neighborhood, you know, where, where like our first, my first actual grow was on a street called Doty, which is in LA. It's like a, it's, it's a notorious crack spot over the years. Even when we had these apartments, it had those blockades so you couldn't drive down the street. And somehow we had this customer 
big, like 400 pound black guy. He was the manager of like 500 unit. It had like multiple buildings, like apartments in this real low thing. And he hooked us up where we had two, then actually a third were next to each other. We just would cut the drywall and they were connect, all connected to one. And even back then, this guy allowed us to tap into the power. We got our lights from the utility power that was running the lights in the hallway of the apartment. So we were just tapped into the, the building's power. So we weren't really stealing it. We were just using the power for the, from the building. Um, we used to have surfboard bags because this was kind of like the coastal area, but the like inland enough that it was the ghetto. And we would carry the weed and the, and the ballot, whatever, up and down the stairs. It was a bunch of white boy stoners in this neighborhood we didn't belong in. And we, and the whole place stunk. And yeah, we, we, we uh, did that there for a few years. I, that's where I was living when I met Sabrina. Okay, so I guess where it's bringing Sabrina into the list, because that's, that's 20 years of my life right there. And that's the best 20 years of my life. Sabrina was 13 years younger than me. We used to put on these festivals in like the post Jerry era, uh, Howard and Scott, we had companies called Kind Productions and we did things mm -hmm. like Dead on, on the Mountain. And they were like cover bands, Cubensis and the Makers. And we would do them at like ski resorts in the summer or out in the desert at these old uh, camp, like 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 uh, people in their trailers live there, whatever. We They were epic. So it's like some of the most fun at these like festivals. Deadhead stuff. Like we would... Be, do these things where we would have, I guess, our own little vendor booth, but we'd basically just have a triple beam and we'd either sell a bag of huge bag of mushrooms or a bag of weed. And at these festivals, just sell weed in the open. This is way back. Like, you know, the, the, I, I, I grew up and lived in Shakedown Street. That's like a, a fucking farmer's market that travels on the dead tour. It doesn't just sell drugs, it sells t shirts, jewelry you know, grilled cheese, the veggie burrito, you name it, whatever people will buy. But it's like its own thing and 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 still exists to this day. You know, but but um so we're never afraid of like vending. Like we'll set up anywhere until they 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 tell us not to, you know. Uh, I mean even back during those eras, there was times when when uh yeah take like it's to this day it's called hippie crack and it's one of the things that disgusts me and, and bothers me about our community because today when a show ends all these people come out and the first thing they want to do is pay five and ten dollars for balloons and nitrous and they sit there until it's gone 
And it's like so stupid. And, and none of that money stays within our family because gangs, like little gangs from, from like Philly, the nitrous, nitrous mafia and stuff have literally taken it over and, and it's organized and they have these vans and endless amounts of tanks and oh wow that the amount of money they make in rock and roll at this point and 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 and, and it's hippie crack but that's another story but i done my share of that selling it because like oh you need to make money show up at a dead show with a tank and a bunch of balloons you know that was always a way to make a quick five ten grand um so um at this event and music is playing and some girl comes up and like hugs me from like in this weird way no one's ever done came from like underneath me i'm a little taller than her and like grabbed on my shoulders and pulled herself up and just whispered in my ear you're amazing and then dithered off into the crowd, right? I went on with my crazy life, whatever, Scott, me had come out there and I truck and selling whatever, the thing ended. And I remember, he remembers. I, we were pulling out of the place. I said, oh, I, I met her. He said, what do you mean you met her? I'm like, yeah, this girl, I don't even know her name. She came up to me. She said this. He's like, dude, you're crazy. You're crazy. You don't even know who she is the fuck but like i knew like it was like one of those moments like it was like definitely one of those moments and so for the next few weeks i don't know i guess i kind of forgot about it not really well there was this event at the house of blues in hollywood when that was still open and uh they had this weird parking you valet and it was always a clusterfuck getting people out of there at the end of the event Half of them didn't really want to leave. They were trying to hang and they were trying to shoo everybody out of there and that kind of scene. And I think it was Mickey Hart or some, some act we went and saw. And they finally brought our truck up and we get in the thing and we're like pulling out and there's traffic and boom, we stop for a second and I look and there she is. I'm like, dude, stop. And I jumped out of the car and then Right away, he's honking, he's yelling because people behind him, it's like not the time to get out of a car. And I walk up and I think I had brought, well, however it was, I had my phone number. I might've even back then had this like stupid little business card thing that I had to get to people. And like, like, oh, so glad you're here. Like in this real rush, not realizing that standing right there was her boyfriend of like, since they were in junior high or some shit. And I was just like, totally naive, whatever. Like, here, here's my number. Call me. And uh, left, got my truck and drove off. I said, dude, that was her. She's going to call. <laughs> He's like, dude, you're crazy. On July, we had a bunch of these local shows. We were at this bar one night, at this beach house the next night, over 4th of July weekend in LA. And a couple of days before that weekend, I think back then the number was only a pager or some shit. Like that was when we had pagers. We didn't have cell phones or just barely or something. 
get this page, whatever, call, it's her. She lives in Encinitas. She tells me that, yeah, when I walked up, that really created a problem because her boyfriend was there and like, whatever, but and I, whatever, one thing led to another and and she didn't have a car because like she was a florist and lived in Encinitas and, and drove a coastal cheek around Encinitas. It was all hippie paint, okay? It was driver on the other side, right? Sabrina, and she lived in this little thing uh, next to the beach and surfed and lived her little hippie life. And uh, she took the Amtrak and I picked her up. And at this point, I don't even have my own car. I'm. We had like a communal truck, Scott and me, where I lived together in Eagle Rock or no, Logan Heights or somewhere at this point. But we had a ton of weed because Scott was a like a breeder before there was breeders. And the strains that he created that, yeah, one of them was like something that he would give to, to, to Jerry. Jerry would like want more of this one weed that Scott created. And those two strains are, the one was called I Bleed. And yeah, I don't like, I don't even think he know, like it was just like accidental. I don't know. It wasn't like he was a breed or anything, but he made these seeds. And the one was called I Bleed. And that was this weed. Most likely looking back, it was super terpy before there was super terpy because you'd smoke it and it would make your eye tear. It would. That's why it was called eye bleed. Nose would tickle, your eye would tear. And then the other one was called Kevorkian. And that was like super knock you out on the couch type weed. And that was because Dr. Kevorkian was in the news because he was this assisted suicide guy. So we named it after that guy. And uh, that's the weed we were growing. And then the garlic and the diamond. And garlic, way old garlic. And the only reason we called that strain garlic was because the guy that gave us the clone lived and we met him in Gilroy, which if you're familiar with California, that's like when you drive anywhere in the vicinity of Gilroy, it's nothing but garlic. That's where they grow the garlic and all that. So um, it wasn't because the weeds tasted like garlic. It was because it came from garlic, the town. But whatever, those were the strains that, that we grew back then. And yeah, I think weed was 400 an ounce, 6,400, like it's crazy, right? You know, my chihuahua somehow has snuck outside, Eagle, which like I saw a mountain lion, a full size one. I, over the years I've lived here, I see a couple of the small mountain lions. Wait, Last week, I'm driving where this always has to be slow because this guy has peacocks and they just happen to roam the office property and sometimes in the road. But I come around that area and there's a full size mountain lion dragging off a peacock. And like, I've seen the small mountain lion. I wouldn't be that afraid. I don't like, it's like a little big cat, a full size one. Oh man, that thing, like, that thing. I'd be scared of that. 
but uh, my chihuahua's outside. Okay, so Sabrina, here, let's do this. Because unless you go to my Instagram, you wouldn't see the beautiful pictures. This is a, uh, a very famous poster artist made this for Sabrina's memorial. Here's a goofy picture of Sabrina. Here's us maybe at a concert. And here's another concert of us. And here she is. Here's her urn. And oh, here's all the chihuahuas. I, I said to you earlier, I had we had an average of five chihuahuas. And over the years they've passed, and those are all their urns. And this is Sabrina. And I it's going on. Two and a half, three years, I keep at least two candles going, um, which I do a lot of candle shopping. It's quite expensive to keep a couple can, can, candles going for years. I don't know how long. I know that when people she knew used to die, she would light a candle for them for like a few days. I've had it going since it happened. So um, I met her and she came up and I had some weed that I had one of those weird partnership deals with somebody and my share of it was hanging in his garage in Culver City. And we went to this house after the show and Sabrina used to like to drink. So when we first dated, I obliged until I was drunk. And we went over to my friend Chris's house and to impress her, I had like weed that was dry, but it wasn't trimmed. And we put it in a grocery bag and, and all her stuff. She had come for the weekend and like brought like 50 pounds worth of clothes and stuff. I mean, not maybe not 50, but pretty heavy bag. We hung out at his house and grabbed this weed that I don't know why, but whatever. Um, and then he offered to let us stay. Like, oh, you guys stay here. But like, we had our own intentions. We wanted to go get a hotel room. And we were on Sepulveda Boulevard, which main drag. And I knew that there was this motel that was like walking distance. So off we go. And to be like a gentleman, I carried her bag that was heavy and she carried my bag that had this stems of weed in it or buds. And we're stumbling, walking down, drawn to this uh, hotel. And we see a cop car, it's like probably two, three in the morning, probably three in the morning. Drive by slow, then turn around, and then drive back up, and then put flash the one light on. Next thing you know, pull over. Next thing you know, like we're both standing there. I give them my ID. They had our IDs. They had one cop had each of us. 
all I remember hearing is, oh, I found, oh, here's their groceries or something like that. And I looked, I mean, I remember her face like shocked. And I don't know what possessed me. I was drunk. I'm crazy. I'm outlaw. Like to this day, you pull me over for going 10 miles an hour. I might put you in a high speed chase. I don't know. Like not because anything's in the car. I'm just like crazy that way. <laughs> so, yeah, I ran. Right. Ran across the street, hopped over this McDonald's fence and got in this bush. And for like an hour, they had helicopters, dogs searching all this craziness. Right. I come to like whatever time in the morning, like so hungover, like half blacked out, like, oh my God, what happened? With a slug on my face from like just laying in this fucking bush and basically got up and went like the few houses and knocked on Chris's door and he opens the door. He's like, get in here. What the fuck, dude? The cops came this, that, they arrested that girl you were with, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, what? Holy shit, what happened? He says, I don't fuck you. They arrested her. I'm like, oh shit, the weed, whatever. I could I pieced it together. Next thing you know, I called the, the, the jail. I called this jail, Culver City. And like, cause I wish Sabrina was here. She she has the best version of this story. But like the jailer came to her and says, Yeah, some Uncle Jerry's on the phone, right? And next thing you know, I have her on the phone. Okay, I'm like, don't worry. You're you all right? She said, I'm all right. All right, we'll get you out. And we found how much her bail was, and and it wasn't that much. She was like charged with like uh, whatever. But because I was associated with the truck, Scott Mine's truck, there was a digital scale in there and all this. So there was like a little bit more to this. And now I'm a fugitive. Okay. Well, I was a fugitive for nine years. Um, yeah, I wasn't going to turn myself in. And like whatever, her charge or whatever got knocked down to nothing or whatever. And the next thing, you know, so on our first date, she gets arrested for my weed. True. Next thing you know, her and her boyfriend have like beyond their final fight. And he basically destroyed like all of her stuff and this whole thing. And, and that's just after she got out of jail. And then she, that's when she got a hold of me again and said, you, you need to come down here. I've got problems. And I, I came to Encinitas and then, yeah, we got what we could from there and we never looked back. Okay. Um, it was weird because like I didn't have a name anymore. Okay. So next thing you know, we go at my people and I get this weird money package together and we start looking for a place. Now this is going to go back all the way to the coffee table at my mom's house, which yeah, they got high times. Like it was like playboy high times. Those were on the, on the coffee table. I Architectural Digest, all those kind of magazines. But over the years, I've looked at high times. I, I mainly remember cocaine and mushroom pictures. Weed pictures were mixed in there, but 
back in the early days, most of it was other drugs. But uh, there was this article and my friends at High Times had figured out what uh, episode, what magazine, and they do these reprints. But there's a, there's a uh, episode from uh, um, the 70s where it's an expose like they do now on a farmer in Fallbrook, California, okay? Now I'm, I'm SFB, San Fernando Valley, born and raised. Sabrina's Encinitas, which is San Diego coastal. And Fallbrook is an area like east of Oceanside, that agriculture. And when we started looking for a place, hey, turd, stacks. Um, I was pretty new to this area, so I, it's like I didn't know the cities or where or what. But um, and even around here, people that people that live on the coast, like Carlsbad, Oceanside, Encinitas, like Fallbrook, that's way out in the middle of nowhere because it is like we're out the out here. Um, but uh. When, when that was like one of the places, I was like, oh, we should look out there. She's like, oh, all right, look, there's a couple of places. Next thing you know, we found this crazy deal where it was only a triple mobile, the house, and it was this super wealthy people that owned this property, but they actually lived in their beach house in, 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 uh, in uh, uh, Capistrano with, with their kid, raised their kids and stuff. And they would come out here on the weekends, and they had their own huge house on the property. And it was the largest California macadamia grove. The whole property was 300 and some acres. Had its own creek, two different wells, beautiful property. Um, a lot of uh, macadamias, a lot of avocados, some citrus, all that. I wasn't really like, it wasn't a caretaker thing. And we started growing in a triple mobile, triple. So it wasn't double, triple. It had like, I think it was like five bedrooms. But these bedrooms were little. But I can remember like, you can't grow in a trailer very easy because the walls are so thin and power issues and vibrations and fuck. But we did for a few years. And like I said, uh, it was like a, Thing where I was given a certain amount of money and it was like this partnership, same old deal, third, third, third. And uh, the first few months, like we were stuck up there. Like we didn't even have a running car. Uh, they would bring us food, you know, and, but we didn't care. We had our spot, we were doing it, right? And, uh, and we trimmed it all ourselves and, you know, prices were high as ever, and it was a perfect property. No one came around, even the, the neighbor lady and my wife became really good friends, or the owner, and because we'd take care of their llamas, and they had all, it was, it was like fucking paradise there, and uh, they would come and take most of the money, like when we harvested, because yeah, that was the deal. Well, it was one of those things where like 
first off, once me and Sabrina were together, we were like a fucking team, period. And there was no more anybody else, right? And it was about what we needed to do for ourselves and all that. And that was one of those times where I stood up and said, no, ain't doing this anymore. It's either, fuck it, we'll go back to nothing. Because you have to call the bluff. Because when somebody's got their fucking paws in you, they're going to they're gonna keep it in you, man. That's that's the whole idea. You know, the longer it goes, the more they make. And so they were, they were, they thought they were going to go forever, taking whatever, a third or half or whatever the fuck it was, and not doing anything. That was the part. Oh, you're supposed to come and help trim. You're supposed to do. Of course, they didn't do that. They had no excuses. And after a couple times, the big confrontation. And oh, the amount of money that they may said that was going to take me to buy that at out was like the most ridiculous thing ever and under no other circumstances would i have ever accepted normally because yeah i'm volatile crazy i would have blown that fucking whole thing up and then fuck that what but so i had to think about sabrina and our life and i was like well i guess because she she was like she would give me uh her influence which was 100% opposite than me. Like we were completely different, opposite of tracks. Because of that, yeah, we did. And it took us like a year. And we even had less for a little while because yeah, had to pay them this ridiculous amount of money for the little bit of money they fucking put in, right? Because ultimately that's what they did. And yeah, got out from under them. Never had a fucking other partner since or any deal like that ever. Fuck that. Even though there's been some good opportunities, I will work it where however the deal is, it's not, you can't say, oh, we're partners or it's like this. Like, so I'm, I have had other things, but no, I'm not partners with nobody. That That's like a lot of times I learn a certain lesson and then that's it. And, and I even have that with like this, it's this crazy thing people around me know about my list. Yeah, there's been people that you think, how, what? That's this guy's homie for fucking ever. But like you cross me a certain way, disrespect anything. That's it. I'm done. I'll never talk. I, I, no, no second chances. Sometimes people think, oh, all these years go by and they reapproach me. No, I don't care. Like once you get to that list, then that's it. And, and, and the things that, that it takes to get there, basically, is disrespect. And I've been fortunate enough to have like a crew of homies, right? None of these, my friends that are my core, know I'm into this YouTube shit the last couple of years. They think I'm fucking crazy. Come, come over here and we watch this shit. They're like, what the fuck, dude? You watch this shit? How can you handle this shit? These are all guys that do this at bigger scale than me at this point and, you know, big players or whatever, but they don't understand. But, they do remember, now this gets back to living on this 385 acres. So for a couple of years with Sabrina, we lived in a bubble where we didn't know anything. We didn't have a TV. We didn't pay attention to anything. We didn't know a day. We just did our thing out in this 300 acres, right? And there's this place called Rainbow. Well, the town we living is rainbow 300 acres in rainbow but we live on the heights and then over by the highway there's this the general store which is like 
two gas pumps, a little liquor store market, a little restaurant, and this bar is always dingy and dark. It's been remodeled and it's all trendy now, but 20 years ago, and you'd have to pay for gas in the bar. And it's like a farm area. So like you go in there at 10 in the morning and the farmers would already be done with their work and they'd be in there dim as fuck drinking with TVs on. And you'd pay for the gas and go on your way. That morning, I went in there and when I gave the lady the thing, I look up and I see 9-11 happening. And I was like, what the fuck? And I went out the truck and I said, yeah, this crazy. We turn on the radio and we hear all this crazy. We went back up to our house and I think a few days later, I fucking bought a TV. We put a TV in. And then, because I'm an obsessive person, I watch the news like 24 hours a day, basically. Right? I mean, not really, but yeah, it was on all the time. Right? And I'd start my morning with like that on and it was just on all the time. And all I talked about and all my friends and every fucking story for the last so many years. And some of that was it scared me because I was so out of touch. And then all of a sudden something happened. I was like, whoa, I wouldn't even know. Right. And so it sent me this whole other way where I was like, I always, for a few years there, I was like, thought something, something was going to happen. I, I, so I watched it like, oh, and things did happen. One thing after another, all the way through fucking this Trump bullshit. But then, and, and people were concerned because and I had started to realize that it made me sick. I would start the day off, wake up, have coffee, smoke a joint, and have all this ambition to do whatever. And then by the time the news did its thing to me, like I was waiting for the one o'clock press conference, or I, it was this whole thing. And, and it, it sucked the life out of me. And, and even after it did, I realized I was addicted. It was like, I smoked cigarettes. It was like trying to stop smoking cigarettes. I'd do pretty good. And my wife, was hated the news okay and 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 would try to say turn that shit off fucking sucking the life out of the house and all the way until covid and covid's like this thing because okay i also have a cannabis cup in high times part of my story right which i don't see so Meet Sabrina, and we're building up our life. Well, that happened pretty quick. Like once I got out from this deal, and we put our heads to the grindstone. Yeah, we also had comfortable living money. Like we opened a business called Monarch, that was a fruit stand. Sabrina isn't like me. I'm like lazy. So I, if I don't have to do anything all fucking day, I'll burn out all day and be fine with it. She always felt like she had to be doing something. And so that became having her own business. And she sold flowers and fruit and butterfly tours because, well, I'll get to that point. But we, we became like, she became like, actually like a big thing in butterflies in our area. Or actually, yeah, if she would have stayed alive, she would have. She had a, had a purpose with the, with the monarchs, but um, um, the, these people changed and 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 um, 
wanted to put somebody in the house that was like their labor that that they they had uh they were paying uh, workers to come to manage the groves and all that and they wanted to be able to have the workers live there so it was like you know we moved on well like my wife was like always the type in this like where we'd start looking for a place i'd say yeah put in the search like 15 to 2200 rent and next thing you know she'd be dragging me to places that were like 3200 rent well just look at it and yeah like she had her ways to get what she wanted and so we got this other house on the top of this mountain and it, it, it wasn't no trailer. It was a million dollar house and had like the nicest everything and was open floor and the views forever. And, and we started that like, oh, we want to own this. And the landlord's like, yeah, lease option to buy. I know you're going through some of this. So I can tell you my experience. Mine, a lot different because 2008 plays a role. But even that place, which was my main thing for 17 years, right? Even though I had during these like 2000 something until 2015, at times had three different places. That was where we lived and was base one. Uh, um, and we're trying to buy it, which man, I was fruit stand and we're trying to, like show a certain amount because you know self-employed to get a loan a mortgage fuck you have to jump through so many hoops even if she or either of us had like a back then a ten dollar an hour paying job it would show better than all this money we had that didn't mean shit to them but enter into the deal with the landlords and all this and, you know um they they at this point i no longer disguise we don't pretend like I haven't had a landlord in 20 years that don't know what's up. I, I don't play that shit. Either you, either you're going to be like, fine. And then it puts you like, Hey, they think we're the richest people ever. So I, I, I realized all of a sudden they don't put any money into the house. They think I should, which is like, well, when you're renting, it's stupid, but that was like a lease option to buy. And so, you know, and and then as things progressed, I was there 17 years. It was like, well, the low, the worst things get around here, like needing a roof and this and landscape and this. Well, that will, since we're going to buy it, that'll be part of the negotiation. We'll be able to low, you know, get it lower. And what really happened was in the first few years, pre-2008, everything was looking good. We were right on track. And then right before 2008, they, that now, they used to have these appraisals. They had three of them. Well, it turns out each one of those was like a different mortgage because the value of their house was going up really a lot, which was, I guess, good for me. Actually, it was bad for me in what I was trying to accomplish. But they, were taking loans out of their house. They lived in Texas and invested in storage units out there. They were like hustlers in real estate. And this was like just one of their places. 
But um, um, yeah, every time I had to get a rider truck, break down the whole fucking rooms with all my whole friends, crew, every all hands on deck, because we would wait till like the night before the the uh, the walkthrough or the appraisal, and we would take everything down, put all the plants, everything in a U-Haul that we would first couple times we drove it down and parked it down the road. After the second time, we just left it right in the driveway. We didn't even care. But we would spackle the walls and make it. My wife was like, decorate, make it look like this was a bedroom and this was this. And, and uh, the guy would come and first time, yeah, he did. Measured everything, looked around. The other time, he didn't even look in those rooms. He had already been there a few months earlier. He just said, oh, it's worth more money. They got more money. And each time they got more money. Well, somewhere came this time when they hit me up and this was one of those decisions in my life, right? I made the right one. They, uh, they were offering to be able to send me because they were like, the lease option will buy, just like what you're going through, was all on me getting a loan, being to get the loan at a certain point. And they were willing to be able to carry it at a certain point. And if I didn't come through, they had made this clear I would lose the equity I had in unless I could and that's why I was like had an accountant we're trying to fucking get our income up in the taxes and that means pay more taxes like we were actually declaring more money than we made to try to fucking make this happen and uh, they were going to sell me the house magic number they came up with 900,000 because that's what it was had gotten appraised for, right? And I would just have to sign the papers they were gonna send me and send it back. And once they processed those papers within a few days, I would technically own that house. And I was like, oh, this is it, the dream. We're gonna do it. Well, over that, we talked talk, and the house wasn't worth that much and this and that. And the house definitely wasn't worth that much and was like already uh, starting to have declining maintenance. Some big ticket things, the roof leaking paint. So we said no, but we could have. And then within a year is when things started changing where I was like, oh, that was a good decision. That's when the bottom fell out. I don't even understand all that that happened. The bottom line is in 2017, when I finally, after 17 years, and we really thought that was going to be ours. We did. We, we fucking, and we lived there 17 years and thought it was going to be ours. Um, they were so fucking upside down that the amount of money they owed the bank was like so much higher than what the new value of the house was that we were like in this, I can't even negotiate with you because technically I would have to do this with the bank and the bank wasn't open to that, which turns out the bank loses money by the way they did this because how it ended up happening is, yeah, even though we had paid the rent for 17 years um, and option to buy part, um, the bank was going to take it from them. And that's what happened. And that's what they let happen because, yeah, they owed more than the house was worth. 
by a couple hundred thousand. It, it, there's no like, there's no way to work that out. I mean, like we couldn't. I tried, and so what ends up happening, and it was even funnier. It's like, yeah, we've had two fires where we lived there. One time, the fire came all the way to our road, and the orange stuff permanently still on part of our property from them dropping and keeping it from there. And that was scary, right? And even that we thought, oh, well, good. We won't have fire for a few more years because it's all burned out. Um, regrettingly, and after 17 years, and that was like part of like the wheels starting to fall off of this thing where I had like everything went so well for so long. And it also coincided with, okay, so, in 2012, now through this, I become like friends with Phil Lash and pretty much kick him down all these weed I grow. And he pretty much just smokes the weed because he likes the weed I grow and trusts that it's clean and all this. And, and there's all these different shows in 2000s and through 2010, 11. And then, and then in 2012, he opens his own place called Terrapin crossroads in San Rafael, which is a very anything, only 300 people can get in. The place doesn't hold much. And he starts putting on like beyond epic music, like weeks of, of uh, lineups with like Warren Haynes and John Schofield and Jimmy Herring and just this incredible thing that went on there for a few years. And we yeah, we rented a house. We lived a block away from there. Like, even though we lived down here, we were up there so much and got tired of staying in the hotels. We had our, like, a place a block away because we went to all the shows. I go to all the shows. Music is number one. Um, one night, one of the most sold out stressors, and I'm kind of like one of the people in the any crowd, you know, whatever you want to call that. Somehow somebody tells me the guy that my friend that works at the door, hey, some guys from high times are here. They don't have tickets. Do you know them? I'm like, where are they? And I'm like, and they were like to me, they were kids, right? Like age-wise. Turned out it was the guys, the, the people that actually ran high times when high times kicked fucking ass. And people should always remember that. Because 2010 to 2000. 14, 15, the high times was fucking, that was the shit. And that, that was some epic events. And, and a lot of like what ground we're standing on today was built off of that. Um, even though everything's all fucked up now, including them. Um, turned out, I don't know if I mentioned names, everything, cause whatever, but, uh, it was a crew that works at high times. And they actually were in charge of intake, judging the cups, right? And yeah, I did what I can do and got them in. And that became, yeah, that little thing triggered the next thing you know. I don't even know how, what possessed me because we were always like as low pro as you can go was how we operate, especially in all this. I ran on the law for like nine years 
And then one day I turned left into the restaurant to take my wife out in the marina where you're supposed to not do that. And the, and the, uh, uh, Marine or whatever the, they weren't even the police. Well, they're the police, but they were like the coastal cops pulled me over. And at that point, I, I even for, didn't even care about fake names. Like I was ready to just get it cleaned up and over because by living that way at any moment, if I got pulled over anything and I knew it would always happen at the worst possible time, the first few years, yeah, I lived like, I never left the house. I never drove, right? I lived in my own jail I created. Now, granted, it was 300 acres or the other place, tons of acres too. Like, so I've been living COVID life, like homebody style for a long time, but I like that. And it keeps me out of trouble. But um, uh Forgot what I was telling you about. Just um, you just got pulled over, turning it into the police. Hey, you know what? I haven't needed to hear you? you because I've been doing all the talking. But ever since that person, I've been waiting me, for that. <laughs> ever since that person <laughs> called me, my audio's been like diminished ninety percent. I can. All right, now I'm. Talk. Hello. Can you hear you? Yeah. yeah. We. You, Wait, you left it. off. Yeah. Tell me where I left off. Left off when you're making okay. a left hand turn into the. Apple okay. So so I finally house. decide. Yeah. I mean, we had decided. I'd actually for like years. We late at night tell her. Yeah. I'll just next week. I'm just going to turn myself in. We're going to because this is how elaborate it got. I actually, at this point, was fully sponsored. I, in 2003, I was going for a ride out in the Indian Reservation, and I saw a go-kart track. And I pull up, and the next thing you know, you can rent like a full-blown 125cc, 100-mile-an-hour go-kart to do a few laps for like 100 and some bucks. And that was what I did. And, oh, yeah, like I always, I had fake name everything by this point i just used my wife's well we weren't married i used her name right so everything we did it, it was her name my first name and her last name all the way to where like even if you google i can tell you you can find all my go-karting articles i was in magazines and all this because i hey i was winning which is this other crazy thing that i that happened um where, okay, I go to this go-kart track and drive this thing. And I remember on the second lap in like sort of a power slide out of the first corner with the throttle, realizing that the rush that I'd been chasing like through drugs, like my whole life was like right there, like the adrenaline of like full blown fucking racing in these carts that are so fast and so good, like, wow. And one thing led to another. And the next thing you know, I like, I, 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 well, I was regional champ. And, and because of my weight, like I could have raced in a class called Masters and needed to add like 15 to 20 pounds of lead to my cart. 
which would have been guys 35 and up. And I was like 37 at the time or something. Or, yeah. Or I could rage in what they call the seniors. And that's, I, I wouldn't have to add weight. I'd actually have to cut weight or watch my weight, but it would be uh, 17 years old and up, right? Well, I raced that because when you put 20 pounds on, it, it, you can't even, it changes the, the, the handling of one of those things so much. And a lot of these kids, they're in, well, one was in Formula One for a little while, uh, Speed. He, he, I, he was kind of leaving karting when I was first there. But some of the kids I raced against are in like the Formula wow. Series and uh, on their way to bigger things than racing. But I was a stoner deadhead. I had a, like a helmet painted by the same guy that painted Jeff Gordon's and fucking steal your face and all this and would openly smoke weed. I was some, some of my best customers today I met or dads of the kids I that we used to race and become my people, um, best friends. But like, I found like, that was my only athletic thing I ever did, but like, that was the ultimate rush. And like, oh, I got into that big. And even though I was sponsored, like there's only one American chassis company in all top end go-karting. They're all made in Italy. And he's the same guy. His name is Fasco. He owns Thrasher Magazine. And he, he had his own chassis company called Track Magic. I was sponsored by him. And like at that point, if you were 17, you could get a sponsorship. I'm like in my 30s. But somehow, it, I don't know how I used to do it because I smoked cigarettes. I would stay up real late at night and show up at the track at 5, 6 in the morning drinking coffee and think that I was going to be able to pull this shit off. And I used to. I used to, like, place or win. I won a lot. I used to have all these trophies, um, uh, shifter cards, and, and uh, had a whole team, FX Racing, that was, like, basically had guys that did everything. I just raced. And, uh, like, oh, sponsored covered a little, but I was spending a lot, but I didn't care. Cause like I was, I was racing and maybe I was going to move up and do something. No, karting was so challenging and the tracks in SoCal at that point, we had some of the best tracks and I spent like 10 years fucking, uh, it's one of my greatest accomplishments, but like halfway through it, I, I like all of a sudden one day showed up at the track and, and used my real name because I had cleared up all that shit. <laughs> and so people were like, yeah, well, wait, we used to race under this name. Now under this name, like people could never figure out the thing, you know? And so, but I didn't give a fuck. I was finally clear and I, I had to do a few months and, and my wife kept everything going and that we were able to put that behind us. And then we had this epic wedding where it was like five days and everyone stayed the whole time. We rented this resort on top of this mountain out here called uh, Palomar Mountain. We had bands and ugh, it was epic. And that was like in 2008 or something. And um, even make this quick, I, you know, I turned 50 nine years ago or whatever. And, and my wife threw a party where 
where like very few people have had the Grateful Dead or members of Grateful Dead play at their personal 50th birthday party. But yeah, I had that. We had, took, she rented the whole place and invite only of my people and friends, which easily filled it up 300. And yeah, uh, on April something, whatever year it was when I was 50, Terrapin Crossroads, my 50th birthday. Now we were, that took a lot to pull off. And we were like, oh, okay. And it was like a pipe dream, but we were gonna, our, our dream was that my 60th there, which now Terrapin, because of COVID, everything had to, it, it, it closed, uh, closed last year. It's pretty sad for all of us that are what we call Terrapin Nation. But Phil's back playing at other venues. And in a couple of weeks is our first big festival in, in, in uh, Ventura. We're five day music festival, camping on the beach. You know, I've, uh, we're back at it now that COVID seems to be whining. There was still music during COVID. Shit, in October, I went to 17 concerts during that month from New York to here, and included the Rolling Stones, Willie Nelson, Stevie Wonder, a whole bunch of Grateful Dead, a whole bunch of Phil and Friends, or not Grateful Dead, Dead and Company, 17 of them, all in October. It was raging. But then COVID came back and music got derailed a little bit again. But we're by June, well, already there's April, but June, it looks like the, the, the music scene will be back going. You know, Government Mule, Tedeschi Trucks, Widespread, Billy Strings, and music is better than ever right now. The, 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 the level of players and the music being played is less Claypool and just, yeah. Sometimes I trip that so many people in this weed tube are like into growing and all that. And only a few seem to be hip to like the music scene and like I, the real music scene, like where people like are phenomenal players. It doesn't matter if it's bluegrass or acid rock or whatever it is. Like what, and yeah, there's some people that play all right out there, but there's a music scene of like really good players, you know? And that's what I chase. My whole life, like even at times after Jerry died, I thought, well, now time I could go do everything. Like my wife, that was her part of her thing. All we ever do is go to concerts. So like that's how she got us to go to St. John, Virgin Island for a couple of weeks. Or like we do things she would like to do that wasn't going on concerts. But uh so we're in like uh, high times. Okay, so next thing you know, I decide to have open this company. It was called Dab on the Go, Dab on the Go. And it was right when that thing started. And we had, uh, e-cigarette battery with like a burner like oh cartridges were starting to come out and even my story with cartridges is like i say like i was you know i took pride in it like phil never had to look ask anyone for weed because i made sure he had weed and i 
you know, he had his favorites, we'll say, strains. Um, and uh, all of a sudden he tells me the story. Like I think it was in 2012, he shows me this cartridge pen. Like I hadn't even heard of this shit yet. And he was saying that he could fly in first class and you could hit this thing and no one would even know because it doesn't smell. And this is great. I can't believe this. And like, I was like, in my weirdness, I was like threatened or I felt like, like somebody else had given him something, right? I, who, right? <laughs> or like, what the fuck? So I remember Googling and asking and barely anybody knew shit and kind of pieced it together through e-cigarette information. And it didn't take me about two weeks. And yeah, I had a cartridge, glycerin with, with the wax we were running and uh, boom. But that wasn't what my thing was about. We had a thing where it was to put wax in it and it was like a coil burner. But what made ours different was I knew a bunch of blowers. And back then glass blowers were like almost extinct. Like there wasn't the expensive pieces. It was like an era like, so glass blowers were really like hard up. And so the cap that we would put on ours was like a hand blown, uh, Glass. I could, I, I could pull out what I'm saying because I still have like a whole room full of stuff. Because in from like 2012 to 2015, I had a booth, every cup. I had magazine ag every month, not every month. And my pen and all that got rated number one in the first ever vaporizer thing in high times and. And, and that's also, I won a cannabis cup in 2014 in San Bernardino. And even how that happens is before I entered the cups in like 13, 12, I don't know how many times, but I was judge of them. And so was my wife and so are a few of my friends. And, and we like, oh, my wife was like edibles every year. Cause that's what she liked. And she took the judging serious and would take them all over the weeks and write it all down. And I would pick indica because that's why I'm an indica guy. One time I had indica, one time I had hybrid. Um, I, I have pictures of like table with like so many samples. Like these one, there'd be like 60 entries to each cup and all this. And I, I remembered sampling. This was it. This is it. The cup. Like my relationship with the cup goes even further back. My best friend would go to Amsterdam every year for the cup dating into the nineties and would bring back all these seeds that we'd grow and he would grow and give me cuts or I'd get some of the seeds. And like, we were always disappointed. Like there was all this hype on whatever Amsterdam was fucking selling. But for all these years, they never, they never really brought anything. It was all bullshit. Until like, that's why like to this day, I still stand and think that a lot of people don't give them a lot of credit, but fucking Swerve and Kelly Connection, you know, I saw it with my own eyes and people weren't there. But in like 2010, he changed the fucking game. You know, he was hyped before all this, everybody's hype. And he had the booth at high times when everybody lined up and had to have his shit, him and Rascals, right? You know, there were some other people too that had some shit, but 
you know, a lot of people talk a lot of shit about, you know, I don't want to get into all that, but like, man, that's like after I cracked all these seeds for all these years that came from Europe and Amsterdam and, and never found shit. Next thing you know, we were getting packs from, from, from Cali Connection and holy shit, man. It was like the first time you got what you got. And it was like straight fire, right? And, and that, that was like in 2010. And even at that first cup, it was the first high times cup where it was in downtown LA before they moved it to, to uh, um, San Bernardino. I remember that like that first day, everybody had boosts and everything, but everyone was like afraid to like sell or not even weed. No, you weren't selling weed, but even seeds because like everything was so unsure, the law, the legal, but, you know, but, but he was the one they said, I'll oh, fuck that. And, and, and like broke the ice and like used to put on the after party, the this party, the that. Fuck, man, that, that was fun. And because I'm San Fernando Valley, he's my little homie. And then, yeah, I support that 100% and grew so much great uh, stuff from, from him. The Blackwater being like the one that I took the cup with and, and have a special relationship with that, which is basically Mendo, Mendo Curbs which has been, you know, remarketed a few times over the years. Now it's whatever, Mendo Breath and Mendo this and Mendo that. But the Blackwater was Mendo. It's Mendo's Mendo. And that's one of my favorite, favorite um, flavors. Yeah, I've been fond of that a long time. So I'll take anything with Mendo in it as one of my favorites. But so... Um, we start having the cups and then basically I just became like a boss. I had like, you know, there's seven. Okay. There's a guy named Zooey. He worked for me. Must be almost 15 years. All people that work for me work for me like 10, 15 years. Like right now, the two that are left 15 years. Okay. Straight out of like high school. Right. Actually, they worked for me not in that side in high school doing like the red fruit stand or whatever. But you, you treat people good and then it becomes like a family and, and that's important. Um, but Zooey, he was like college and worked for me, was my right hand and my left hand. Okay. And, and none of these things. I could have accomplished without him. And I knew he had a lot more in him. And he's Asian and his family wanted a lot more from him because, you know, he had degrees. And he would turn down offers. Sometimes you tell me, oh, Facebook offer this, but I don't want to do it. And, you know, uh, comes the time when like, Everything hit at once, like like this one week, he sits me down and says that his aunts who are very wealthy, aunt and uncle are doctors and they're going on some thing where they're gonna be in another country doing medicine for like three years. And they have a very expensive house with very expensive furnishings in Berkeley. And because of family, he needs to go live there and take care of it. 
And at the same time, me and my wife were starting to have some issues. Now, I guess I need to go back because in 2015, when I had like three places and multiple things and the booths and the business and God, I have spread thin and all the shows. It got to this point where first I was no longer felt connected to plants. Like I barely, like I had everything. I didn't have that. I was, I was a boss. And then even with money, oh, bigger stacks of money went through my hands. No di different. But ultimately, that's all it was. Bigger stacks of money. And it, it, but it's like, I wasn't into it. And even some of it was like part of what you needed to do was starting to be like today. I'm not into hype and playing all that game. Like this was before Instagram, but you still had to play all that. Like I can remember like one of the biggest problems, one of the reasons I said, fuck, shut this shit down. I'm done with it would be, we would literally ship as fast as we could. And we were sending like important ships from China. People would order it and we'd mail it out. And like somebody, and we had hundreds of customers a week and shit. One customer would become some pain in our ass. And the next thing, you know, go to whatever Facebook, I forget what social media and leave some fucking posts like that we were, bad or we sucked or we this that would create these repercussions you work to build your brand and one idiot it didn't get your stuff for an extra day or so put some post up and like that shit drove me crazy no matter how hard we tried we couldn't make those people happy. And then we'd find the people that we knew they got the shipment. They would just say they didn't for we'd send it another one. And there was all that stuff. And like, I, like even today, why I don't like people and I don't associate with people because people are fucked up. And even when you think you have 10 people and they all seem, well, these are all pretty cool. Yeah. Only one of them is really worthy of your fucking thing. I've learned that. Now, maybe other people have better luck. But like, I've been a long time and had a lot of people and all this, but I, I don't like people and people, yeah. So I try not to keep myself like out of all that. Um, I, I, I think I tell, like I say a lot, I live like drama free and pretty much have like honed my thing down to yeah, drama free in, and even though you could make more and you could be more and you could have more, all that comes with drama. I didn't like having to answer the phone. I didn't like having so many messages. I didn't like feeling like people felt like I didn't call them back soon enough. I, like, I don't have any of that anymore. Sometimes my phone doesn't ring for days or maybe it's text with friends. It's none of that, none of that drama. And, and I can get up when I want, go to sleep when I want. Don't have to answer to no one. And some of this has to do with, yeah, the tragedy that like jolted me like as a person. And like, I, I already know I'll never be the same. Things will never be the same. And that I don't even know where this ends. Like when something like that happens and someone is brutally, brutally, right? I had to sit through the whole trial, everything, you know, um, that I don't even, I don't know how I could even bring, encapsulate that into this, but holy shit, 
and, and the most innocent, like how her, like even the fact that what I walk with is like, wait, I'd already done, I'm older. Like I'd already done, I'm burnt out. I, I smoke cigarettes. I've fucking done drugs my whole life. Take me. She was like a vegan full health was like, was, was, was trying to help the monarchs to survive. There's very few people that are even even doing any real work on the ground, and they're being they're they're going to be gone. Like it, it's it's terrible, and you know. But so 2015, I basically, and some of this I think I was right because through all this is the business and the changes that cannabis is going through. And I think I might have like shot my road too early. And a lot of other people I know that have been already eaten and spit out that like had come in in the 215 era and, and put their heart and soul in, in whatever years. Yeah, we were a little early, right? Because like I look now, there's like a whole new cast of characters, only a few that were managed to, to be there way back and still be here now. Um, it's a tough, it's, I don't know why it happens that way, but a lot of reasons. But I started downsizing, which is crazy because like it's not in your instinct to do that. And it wasn't in the instincts of like people around me. I mean, they thought something was wrong with me. Like when you just uh, oh no, yeah, shut this. No, I only want to do 20 lights. I'm tired of 60. Oh, I don't want that anymore. I don't care that we have X amount invested. I have a bedroom, so you can't even walk in. It has all this shit and in inventory. I haven't even, uh, sometimes I people ask me, oh, do you have any of those left? I could give them to them or whatever. I, I didn't care. Like it was like, I don't know. I'm going through different parts of life, right? And the, the house situation and, and so many things because I really was trying to buy that house and a lot of the work was for that. And next thing you know, things did, didn't feel right. And, and um, but things were still good because once I like shed all that and then it was just basically Zooey and me and we, we like downsized. Um, and then, like I say, Zooey get, was going to move. And all within one week, somehow me and Sabrina are in some fight where we're separated over some bullshit. And Zooey's moved away. And like, like I say, my right hand and my left hand. And we had worked together for so long. Like it wasn't like he knew I, I do most of the things, but when I slacked, I was, he did, it was just, it just happened. And you can't replace guys like that. And, and at this point, he literally sits next to Elon Musk and like got a job in the factory of, 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 of Tesla. And, and then soon rose up to be like some, I don't even know what his position technically is, but, He's in the self-driving car thing where he's the intermediary between Elon and the team of programmers because Elon 
in every one of his vehicles is full self-driving. Now we're not talking like, we're talking full self-driving, meaning Zooey also has a matching car to everyone that Elon has. That has like the differences, oh, they have like 28 cameras on those cars, right? And you can just say, you get in the car and tell the address, that's it. You don't have to touch nothing else, right? It works. And and even works on my windy roads out here in the middle of nowhere in in uh, what uh, sport mode or whatever. He had he took me for a ride where self-driving 100 percent in, in, in sport mode. And the, I race cars and that was fucking gnarly. Like the, 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 the apexes and the way that car was was aggressively driving with nobody driving. It was crazy. I can't wait till like everyone gets to utilize that but yeah he moved up like i knew he had so much more to give than take care of some old pot broke and sure enough he did but like like i say like oh i have people people are good people but you know those 15 years with zooey i should have accomplished more because you know even why i had these businesses and that was some of the things he was into doing he loved the internet and all that. But so Zooey is another person that's like a super influential person in my life. He's a lot younger than me. He, you know, he's older now. And uh, there's Toshi. Toshi lived here for so many years. My wife met him at the fruit business. He was a Japanese guy. He didn't have no green card and really knew a lot about growing shit. And he worked for me forever and then got so sick of like, trying to have it together in the United States after like 30 years of living in the United States, he went back to Japan a couple of years back. And uh, some of these people I forget about sometimes, but yeah, they, they, they worked a long time and it wasn't like work. We were just like a team and we were just, you know, and that's how, that's how it works best. Like I, I don't, I don't know. It's hard to explain because I know in this game, it's very few people have people that work for them long times. Usually there's issues and things change. And some of the people before that, that works for me, they have gone on to have way bigger grows than me and all that. And like I said earlier, a lot of times people that work for you, they want to become you. And, and, and like I had in my life times where people were trying to, hold me down to benefit them until I could finally do it myself where I'm the opposite. I'm like super. Yeah. Let's get it going. What do you need? I'll help you. Which is sometimes against your own self-interest because, you know, when you have somebody that's trained and it's working to, to lose them every time it's, it's hard to find somebody else. You know, now I'm at a point where I'm tired of even, I got to just do some things myself because to actually teach somebody, you have to put in effort. You can't just expect him. And so those first few months or first few years are really important to, to the longevity of that relationship. And I, I, all the people, they know who they are. They probably don't, Need me to say their names. 
but there's people that, that that are under every one of us growers that make it happen. You know, some people do all the work themselves. I, I get that, but um, that's not feasible for me. Now, what time is it there? It is 2.32 here. And I tell you, I have been commenting all night long. I am fucking so grateful for this episode. Well, uh, I'd is... like to show you my garden. Shit. You could do whatever you want. I don't man. know. I don't like, <laughs> I mean, I, I know. I, 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 I'm riveted, man. I, I'm absolutely well, riveted. I told you. I mean, I have, so I definitely far, know man. I have a story. And to be honest, wow, I, I'm going to get off and go, wow, I left that part out and I left that part out because there's a lot of parts. But I think I did pretty good with some of it, at least. I mean, I'd like to, I mean, to be honest, like, yeah, Sabrina was everything. She wasn't just anybody. And what happened in the trial and everything, trial's over. You know, I had a relationship for, for over two years with a DA. And I'm an outlaw. So the day I had to go and sit in her office and I first met her, I rejected her like we had a scene and I stormed out of there because like, if you know what I'm saying, like I can't be around those kind of people and stuff. But when something like this happens, it like I had to. And not only that, I had to take the stand and then I had to like be straight. Like I can't even begin to tell you like, when it had my testimony had nothing to do with the evidence or anything, but by me having to take the stand over some something more trivial, the timeline of of uh, her life timeline, um, I had to be cross examined and. Yeah, I had like I had to say like be honest about what I what tap what what our life was and what we do and all that, which was like wow, like, but that yeah, was a crazy trial. He even took the stand himself, which he got convicted of first degree murder and is serving fifty five to life. And just last week, I got the notice from the CDC that he's been picked up from the jail because, you know, COVID really fucked this thing up. And, man, it was touch and go with the trial. And now there's going to be all these appeals because he's claiming that his rights to a speedy trial, constitutional rights that, you know, I get it, you know, and COVID made the law like we broke the law you know and uh that won't be for many years when the appeal comes but uh i went through a thing where yeah from the moment i was all i saw was justice for her and this da we became really good friends she helped me so much I just wanted to tell you, uh, chat, Chiba Lane, and the rest of the people in chat wanted me to tell you 
they are very is uh very grateful for you sharing your story uh, well it's a lot of what's happening with me because if anyone would have known me or my friends that know me before this i mean i'm okay i get by but inside i don't know what to say about it but you know it's been like going on three years and the trial's over but i'm still left with the whole and i'm old and and i can't take i can't nothing i can do to fix it but except you know like i i know she just wants me to keep keep going and i i i'm okay with that it, it's hard like i don't know like even i have a friend that i met through this some of you should know uh, michael hendon i didn't know michael but he got murdered like a year after sabrina got murdered over here in in riverside and left Brianna, which, which is his wife, and they were breeders, and uh, so I support her a lot, and I've uh, been growing a lot of her strains, and and uh, trying to. Well, we have a connection because, like, even when the DA, very few people, like you, don't want to be in this club, but there's a club of people that have their loved ones have been murdered you know and uh i know everyone has things and well wishes and things they can say but it's like weird and i try not to let it show but like unless you're like in these shoes it's weird i like nothing you say has any bearing only if you like oh the few people i've spoken to that know what i'm at that have been there really it's like weird people that aren't like oh unless you've experienced this you don't know it's hard to explain but on a happier note because i don't i didn't want to go snotty and all that but um okay so that happened and uh let me get a joint and then a light and we're gonna go look at the plants before we end this because i didn't say this but like i'm a throwback to the 90s as a grower i started this stuff in like i say 89 and uh a lot of my techniques oh i i'm on the fence even why i got involved with youtube or involved started watching it during covid it's like, yeah, I'm on the fence about getting LED. And you know, I've built a whole living soil thing outside. I have four by eight raised beds with all that and soil uh, worm farm and did great outdoor last year. But I'm not really an outdoor grower. I'm an indoor grower. But most of my techniques indoor, I haven't changed anything. Well, a few things, but nothing major since the 90s it still works for me i have to work it a little harder to to keep up with the yields and and and, and the numbers but the quality i've had that down for a long time 
And I say that like, because overall, I, these are just my little opinionated gripes about what I call weed tube. One, that doesn't seem that we support enough women, period. And that's why there's only like a handful of women in this industry, Ms. Jill, uh, Modern Epigenics, uh, J-Lo out there. You know, there's some others that aren't so public, but considering WeTube doesn't represent that very well. One. Yeah. I've Two. Un- that's where I've got to disagree a little bit because I've uncovered as many women and I I do not no. hesitate. Oh, I'm not saying anything I individual. Hesitate. I'm not like, and, and to be honest, <laughs> yeah. But, 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 you know, when you get into the panels, right? The panel, like, like I'll say it like this. Yeah. I've been going to concerts forever. And some concerts are what we call sausage fest. And sometimes it's like you go to a certain city and the, the numbers are just off. Like when it's like 90 to one or, you know, nine, nine to one or something, you know, um, and sometimes, you know, but that's a problem in society overall. Second, for some reason, as a proud salt grower who has learned and mastered salts the best I can, spent a lot of years on the forums before we tubed and learned a lot there. And I, I, I feel like we're disparaged and we're not fully represented. Uh, and a lot of a lot of it living so, terp. That's terp, which is another funny story. His name is Terping Terp, but he's 12 years old. So when I named him that, I, I I used to I remember I used to have to tell people what a terp or terping was. Like today everyone knows, but even my stoner friends, when I named my dog Terp 12 years ago, they're like, what? What is that? Everybody, everybody caught that shit earlier when you said it. <laughs> when you yelled to him earlier. Well, here they are. Everybody are. said, lol, turp. <laughs> That's Herbie. That's Daisy. That's Maggie. And Turp is out here yelling because. We're going to go down here. Now, if we were here in the daylight, I live on top of a mountain and have 360 degree views of, of, yeah, it's really nice up here. This is a special property. All right. What's it like there? It looks like it must be nice. Somewhat nice, huh? I'm I hear it. Okay. Hopefully we ain't losing him. <laughs> I don't know. 
<clears throat> okay, you back? There we go. There we go. Hell yeah. All right. So now my Wi-Fi should be all right. So this is Veg, which, to be honest, last night I was down here myself and set a tray. My workers kind of don't need to be told what to do. So they, somebody, well, I know who, set this tray. Now, I'm not, well, I'm not going to bitch because it's my fault. But some of the plants that got set right there last, today when I was sleeping, I imagine, are plants that I didn't want set because I needed to take more clones from them. But I'm glad they uh, took the incentive to do, do the work without me. But I wasn't supervising. So now when I was younger, then I wouldn't have been smart enough not. I would have maybe like acted like a bitch and said, oh, why'd you do that? I didn't want you to do that when it wasn't there. You know, things I've learned, like I appreciate the incentive and more than, and sometimes, well, why didn't you ask me? Well, because I, I didn't want to wake you up, you know, that kind of stuff. But, um, and there's seven tall ones and a bunch of short ones and it's all set wrong. But we'll go into this other flower room that maybe has more uniformity. Um, yeah, so I have a lot of different strains. Um, I have, this is a, uh, these are actually Masonic stuff right here. This is Grandpa Breath into Wilson. And this is Sour Trop into Wilson. Um, I sprayed light sulfur uh, when I turn them back. So that's what you see on the leaf a little. It'll grow through it. Um, especially the last few months, I didn't have to, but I've learned over the years this. Uh, we went from like 40 degrees at night and 60s in the day to 80s and 90s in the day and 50s and 60s at night. And that shift is usually when I see little powdery mildew pop up over the years. So I preventatively uh, hit it. So, and in here I got apple fritter and afku and... Uh, this is uh, Symbotics, uh, Bendo, uh, Punch, and these are new, uh, Strawberry, Banana, uh, Tahoe Aliens, and Strawberry, Banana, Gary Payton, and um, so how I do this is I'm in Rockwell, at this stage, and then Rockwell goes into cocoa buckets. I used to use loose Rockwell, but loose Rockwell is like 40, 37, 40 a bag, and good cocoa is like 15 or 17 a bag, and they bucket the same amount of buckets. And so a few years ago, I did it for a while where I did some in cocoa, some in uh, Rockwell. And well, no, cocoa worked fine. And also with the cocoa, and then I'm able to amend it where in the loose Rockwell, 
you're more sterile. So then I also put worm castings and frass and a lot of the stuff I learned a little bit from the from the uh, um, living soil crowd. And uh, these are all my clones, which I just have this little tent and a little light. And oh, I, I usually have 90% or 100%. Uh, yeah, I just take clones. I can use Clonex or Root Tech, and usually within five to seven days. These ones are only like three or four days old, and they don't have roots. These are maybe seven, or these are actually all rooted now. And they're oops, they're all just different. I'm, I'm at a place right now where I'm going back to monocropping. So here's how I come about even being here. So in 2015, I also, after running years worth of Valley Connection, and I had multiple places, next thing you know, Hermes were fucking out of control. And I had seeded weed, which was worthless. And my solution to it, was that's it i didn't crack any packs of seeds from 2015 until covid two years ago i monocropped three different varieties and just did my thing a couple times my friends would give me a clone or two and i'd grow them and but i didn't have any varieties for a while and uh um it all starts with wedding crasher. Uh, my friend had given me a few over the years, symbotic, that's one of the breeder guys, um, strains. And every plant I grew was always really good at stack. It was good. It was good all the way around. And when COVID hit, like I was supposed to get on a plane that morning and go out to New York for, for a big run of shows, got canceled. And, Next thing you know, I regurged these accounts from back in the company days, got the password and, and uh, um, one thing led to me finding some picture of wedding crasher and, and trying to buy this pack of seeds. And then it was already sold out. And one thing led to another. I think the first YouTube I watched might have been on the Future Cannabis Project. And then, like I was saying earlier, I was like totally addicted to watching the news, like constantly. Like it wasn't even that I watched it, it was just on. And I had already come to a point where I, I, I had reached a point where I had tried to stop that on my own. I felt it was unhealthy. And what you running in there for light? Huh? They want they want to know what you got in there for light. Wait, say it louder. They want to know what you got in there for light. Looks like HPS, right? Oh no, and here's metal highlight in here. And yeah, well, I use a T5 at this stage. And uh those are metal halides. I'll put it this way. So many years ago, 
not that many. I bought all new digital balances. That was back when I had a lot more like, and they had five-year warranty. And like clockwork, like between five and seven years, like they just died, you know, like in their doorstop when they died because they, they don't fix them or anything. And over that period, I just replaced them with, with the, the same ones that had been running like a lot. Some of them I'd have to climb up there and really look, but I know there's balances that have been running over 20, 25 years and still work. <laughs> now, granted, you got to change bulbs, use more power. I hear all that. But there's a couple things that when you get to where I am, you, you might experience or understand. It's really hard to teach a new old dog new tricks, at least this old dog. And even in the last, oh, I was close. I remember I was going to just go buy 18 fucking HGLs or GL, I don't know. And even in the last two years, the prices come down pretty much. And there seems recently to be drama about the specs and the numbers. And I still think there's a little more innovation to go. And yeah, I haven't uh, changed. And now in this room, it just moves air. And then all my other rooms are sealed and have like this room has four tons, two two-ton ACs, and um, has much taller ceilings, which even as I've been running this now for so many years, taller ceilings just make taller plants. Because my other room that has shorter ceilings, I just don't let the plants get so tall. But uh, like this room sort of, and yeah, this has been up and going nine years. So even the mistake I made here is this was all built to grow chambers by the previous landlord or my landlord's husband who, who died in a freak incident in a golf cart crash at a golf course. And so when I rented the place, these were like his chambers. He was like a home grower. I don't even know what methods he used. He didn't think about measuring the, the chambers because, or at least not in four by eight increments because like if you would have moved the wall three inches this way, I could have fit two four by eights in this room instead of a three by six and a four by eight. But I'm also a kind of person that likes aisles. I've had grows where literally you had to crawl around and. I used to get bruises on my legs because I would have to scoot down the side where I could put more in here, but I don't know. I like to have space. And these, I've had this OG and like, this is an OG Kush to me, or I, this is an SFV OG or Mars OG. This is OG. Like I got this over 20 some years ago and have continued to clone and grow it came to me as OG and it is just like an unadulterated OG and stretches it's finicky but it's that yeah it's OG it's just that pure OG and 
Kevin Joltry said something a while back where he was like saying that he predicted that the well, he was like saying that oh we went through this era and now we're in like a, a candy fruit era and he was like sort of predicting or saying we might go back to like nostalgic strains which that's I think that's a great idea and I think OG. Well, Southern California has always had this certain people. Now there's less of them, but even a few years ago, there's people that only smoke OG and only buy OG. Um, so I was only like, sometimes when I have a strain that I'm keeping like that, I just run like one or two plants and because I don't keep moms. Everything's a clone off a clone off a clone. There's no moms. Like I'll just take clones from these ones onto the next ones, onto the next ones. So even like right now, I'm deciding most of these aren't getting cloned because I'm not keeping them to make room for new stuff, which that will still mean I have to cycle through. Like so, when I decide, oh, I'm not running that anymore. Oh, there will still be a batch or two that will come out over the next few months because, um. I cycle them through. I mean, I, that, that, yeah, that explains it. And um, yeah, I guess if it works, don't fix it. And so, um, but came across the wedding crashers. Came across this community and then and, and then it like reopened myself because oh I was part of the forums I was a lurker and like I say I had the booze and I but in 2015 I went back into like monocropping and just laying low and then uh, a lot of the people that are like uh, part of uh, they they were my friends from before like I I I know James Loud from a long time and I know know a lot of these people that are more uh, public about it and are actually you know have a brand and a business so that they have to be um so i uh like anything with me i obsess i'm compulsive obsessed yeah i pretty much watch every show like that's what i do i i don't i i'm thinking of tur turning off my direct tv because I, well, other than Formula One and a couple things, I don't watch it. I watch, I, there's some kind of content or content that I didn't watch. So I, I kind of just spend my time from one of these, I call it weed tube, from one weed tube to another. And, uh, well, I got my opinions and all that, but that's not important. Um, I was also going through the beginnings of trial and grief and all this and was having a real hard time motivating. And when you do something, even if you love it for so long, um, maybe not everybody, but at least myself, I get, I go through phases and I, I, I didn't have the motivation to, to water, to change water, to, to do it. And then, Weed tube, I've watched Weed tube, and and guys would be talking and 
so much uh, new blood and they had so much enthusiasm. Like I remember that enthusiasm where, where I had that so many years ago, but that wore off on me and next see such like tight examples of killer grows and people knocking it out the park and it it, it was like feeding it's now the covid's almost over and like anything when you obsess on it <coughs> now sometimes the weed tube <coughs> sucks the life out of me and the next thing you know I feel like sometimes I'm not getting my work done because I'm sitting here watching it. But that's a personal issue. I think a lot of people go through that, to be honest with you. Well, that's that's one thing I think that 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 this community, probably one of the things it does the most for everyone, is keeps you on track as far as that, because my problem isn't getting sidetracked into other things in life. I don't have kids and, you know, other than the concerts, I just basically stay at home. But I could be at home and you saw it's only so many a little walks down there. Some nights I'll be, it'll feel like it's a, just to get up to motivate. And, and I'm in, I smoke weed too much from the morning till night. Unlim- you know, like... I don't know, a lot of joints all day long. Yeah, it, 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 one thing, it, we most of the time demotivate. Like if, if I could get up in the first five minutes after smoking where I'm like high and break through and actually start doing something. But if I wait like 15 minutes, then I'm burnt. The next thing you know, in the, my brain, I'm like, figuring out ways oh well it can wait till tomorrow i'm a procrastinator and well whatever negative things we bring to each person it's always far outweighed by the positive but i have to say yeah i think weed kind of makes me lazier than i normally would be and procrastinate but since I've done it for so long, I don't know what normally would be, would be. So like I, even when I was in jail, somehow I had weed snuck in through visiting and pretty much smoked weed every day while I was there. So I don't know when the last time I went a day without weed. I can relate to that. I went outside. I've, I've actually chosen careers so I can keep with my cannabis use. So skilled trades, at one point I did, you know, chef work, you know, any, anywhere there was a, a drug test. You know what I mean? As long as I could get by, be happy, and still have my cannabis, I was fucking happy. So, and I'm still there. Well, yeah, I guess, I mean, the legalization, there's things that over time is going to fix some of that stuff, which is ultimately most still most important for people 
personal lives. But as far as the, the business side of it and the tax side of it and, and the direction and all that, yeah, I wish there was a way that this was like going to be going in a different direction. But like, I no longer think that there's even a chance to keep it out of like the big corporations, not just them being in the business. That's, 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 no, they're going to control it. And over 20, 30, 40, 50 years, yeah, there won't be people like us. Like, you know, that's my fear. You know, I guess you could say, oh, there'll always be craft and there'll always be whatever. But even like if you say, okay, and then we're just like moonshiners, right? So like, I don't know. Um, and I've had my opportunities like to, to, to be, like my dream would always have been to like have my own establishment and my own store or those like, that year, so many years ago, I thought that was, but then even the few times I've been in situations where the real paperwork and the real stuff has been, yeah, no, I wouldn't, I couldn't agree to those type of terms and those type of rules and, and, and stuff. Like even the metric where you have to weigh everything and like things that are so ridiculous that, but, but we allow it because they gave us an inch one way and then we're gonna accept all this that we know i know all the people know in the deepest part of their heart that you can't that the legal thing is like bad and and, and what what they're going to do to cannabis is bad they don't have like any of the same they don't think of it the same way obviously and 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 if it's just going to become that it's just going to become cigarettes or it's just going to become alcohol i mean well at least we had our our time i mean i don't know but sometimes when i make comments in in chat it's just because like yeah i don't like people supporting the that so openly like like one a lot of the youtube content is breeders i mean you know they they they're a good part of of well because they happen to be in like a gray area at the moment you know but it won't take but one law to change that and the other day i heard the guy and i've already known some of this but the guy from Humboldt, Nate, who is one of the only big uh, C guys that's fully metric or like that. And like the things he's explaining, he has to do to deliver even the smallest amount of seeds to a customer is ridiculous. And like, I don't know the tax rates and stuff. It, it won't matter what they are at the moment. I, I've said this in chat. People don't realize, I mean, they say 40% tax, that's crazy. Do you realize that tobacco is taxed at 3,000%, okay? RJR and the manufacturers claim that they sell a pack of cigarettes between 35 and 37 cents. That's what they get for selling a pack of cigarettes. 
The taxes and tariffs are the other 10 bucks, right? So there's 3,000% tax. So if they tax tobacco like that after 100 years, right, for, you know, pretty sure that they think cannabis is like right alongside it. Like the lawmakers, the politicians, the, the you know, they look at cannabis, tobacco, mm, kind of same product. And even something else I'll throw out there, as we see and hear all this crazy technology that's for breeding and, and, and uh, CRISPRs and so many things. And knowing that if you're a botanist and you get a degree, one of the places that hires the best people for decades has been tobacco. And a lot of people think that tobacco just chemically treats what's in a cigarette. Yeah, they probably do. And a lot of that's the paper and stuff. But you don't think, why did they hire all these botanists for decades? They've, they've taken this plant and, and, and probably have synthesized and, 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 and pushed the addictive properties of the plant, right? Like, because mm, you can just look at history. Tobacco's been part of history for thousands of years. Only today is it like so addictive. People go crazy when they don't have it, right? So it must've been a different tobacco they were smoking back in the old days, right? But they're capable of that. And I'm sure, just like we find in their secret files years later, stuff out, I have a feeling they've spent tremendous money, the, the big corporate, even if they don't have the right to research cannabis, they, they, they do what they want, right? To try to, to, to figure out botany on, on cannabis, to figure out, there's anything, anything in this that could be more addictive to make it a product that fits into all their other products, right? Coca-Cola, coffee, so many things. Like they tweak it a little and next thing you know, Doritos addictive because, oh, they got that turp just right that you eat one, you're reaching for fucking the whole bag, right? So that's their game. We know that. And if they're trying to make cannabis their product, which they are, well, they would like to see an addictive form of cannabis, right? And hey, they're in it for the long haul. So they don't care about us in our lifetime. Just like we used to say, oh, well, we got to wait to change things till the old people die off and we have better voting or whatever. They're looking at it going, yeah, well, when all these old stoners who roll weed up and smoke die, the next generation will be on some kind of other for and the next generation. And, and they're looking at not even your kids, maybe your kids' kids as where it turns into their trillion dollar, not a billion dollar, their trillion dollar industry. And, and however they got to get there, we know that that's what they do. So instead of, see, I came out of this era where the first cannabis events that I ever went to were rallies, like by Jack Herrer and you know, those people trying to get people excited about whatever 
vote we had that we lost every one of those all through the years until Prop 215 and 64 or whatever. But, but there was like this advocate group and there was like people against it. Now all of a sudden since we legalize it and then there, I don't see, maybe there is, but I, I don't see like a group or anybody against it. I just see a bunch of people figuring out how to go along with it. And I'm frustrated by that, even though like really I'm not because I'm old and I'm, it doesn't concern me. But then it does in a sense, because if I think like that and not speak up or not put my opinion out there, even if my opinion don't mean shit to most people, then that's like a sellout to me. Because for the last year or so, sometimes these I, things, like two years ago, I wasn't outspoken against legal cannabis. Like, I thought it was a good thing. I voted for it. And, you know, even though already right off the bat, it seemed to mess things up. Here in our state, 2018, that's only four years ago. Okay, and in four years, you can't, point to one example of anything good that came from it or that they brought that right it's just all a mess already and and such a mess that is only going to get messier and i think that's also part of their strategy like as californian as our you know i know you're in michigan but hey we've yeah medical got 215 basically died off here they didn't even have to do what they're doing in michigan it just died off because of lack of support they didn't really maybe they changed some laws i i stopped paying attention because to me it's like just noise the but it's corrupt and it's it, we've had a corrupt board whatever they're called the c whatever they're corrupt when they announced them you just had to research where these people came from to realize, holy moly, this is going to be corruption city. They've been operating for four years, fully corrupt. Instead of in, the, in our states in the middle of a collapse, they're calling it an extinction. My friends up in Mendo and up there. Yeah. I, at first I thought, well, no, it's serious. Like people aren't exercising their licenses. These are licenses they spent years of fighting to get and paid money for some of them have only had licenses for a couple of years because they didn't sell last year's crop there's no reason to go this year's crop right especially when you got to pay taxes that are so whatever so people aren't exercising their licenses just a year ago people were selling their licenses for ridiculous amounts of money so it's like and i i i get the bigger thing of there's a day of conglomeration coming and there's a couple people look pretty positioned to get paid mega money. The jungle boys, the burner, a few people, but don't ever forget when they conglomerize like that, they don't buy every business in the industry. They just buy a couple of the big ones and then they squeeze like Amazon did and oh, operate at a loss for a year or two and drive everyone out. Like, so all that's right there. They're going to do it. They're doing it. And instead of us having like, like we have events to smoke and hype each other and try to sell each other. 
we need to have events to figure out like what the fuck we're going to do to try to at least slow this down or at least try to bring some kind of like uh, fairness or, or righteousness to it. And, and as much as one thing I've learned, I, I've been arrested at no new and we used to protest in my, in my youth, uh, Greenpeace and so many things. I know how to remember them, but at the time we thought we were going to make a difference. I remember we thought that by doing that, we were going to make a difference. But over the years, I look back and know, even if we made a little difference in the long run, they just grinded right over you like they've done with everything. And so, you know, that, that puts us on a bad note. Let's try to end this or get back to a good note. <laughs> This has been fun, man. This has been an amazing episode. No Russ is here, too, by the way. And well, I, I hope there's again, some good old deadheads out here because, see, being a deadhead, like I like to say, and James Loud said that I just repeated, all lead roads lead back to the Grateful Dead. Well, since I lived through that, like pre-internet, a lot of our, our community whether people realize it or not, right? And the Grateful Dead wasn't the only part of it. You know, the 60s and that, that, that vibe. Like we traveled around the country and, and you probably know because you're of age. Yeah, everybody knew. If you wanted something out of like whatever normal stuff was in your town and you went to a Grateful Dead parking lot, there was everything. We were like, we were like networked and, that was it. People networked all over way before there was all this. And, and um, yeah, like even myself, like I, I remember the faces and I remember certain things, but I don't know what any of these people are or what, but like there were, the genetics were there before 1991. Like I was saying earlier, the dead scene had already taken over by gypsies. So when Ken Dog buys whatever and that becomes like historic the chem dog and you, you you can just go through that guy the podcast that does long form interviews and he has some really killer interviews with a lot of good guys i listen to everyone i don't know the percentage but over 50 percent of those people in their story of their cannabis Maybe not as extensive of me being a full-on lifer in the dead scene, but but yeah, the genetic, the this, the that came from. But like even a lot of us oldies in the dead thing, we laugh at like like that it's all centered at ninety-one. Like what? All, some magic happened in ninety-one, and like all these bag seeds that became historic just happened to appear. And actually, like one of the worst years ever, Brent had just died. We didn't even really have direction as a band. And, and not uh, gypsies had taken over. But somehow, genetics that are part of the bigger picture of our, you know, our main lineage, more stories than not come out of, oh, yeah, it was at some dead show. I got it in bag seed in the box. First off, I, I guess I just never saved seeds, but I don't remember weed with seeds. So like, I don't know where everybody found bag seeds. Like the whole point was seedless weed. 
And if somebody had seeds in their weed, you really didn't want to buy that weed. So maybe I just was lucky and didn't get all the seeded weed or unlucky because I didn't get all the seeded weed. Because sometimes I think back, wow, I was right there. How did I find this? But I'll tell you the truth. I was too interested in cocaine than, than looking for a good seed. So I missed my, Times. you know, my opportunity. Like I know in life, it's all about being in the right place at the right time. That's what happened to like Bezos. That's what happened to Elon Musk. That happened to a lot of them. It's not that they were any more smarter or special or anything. They were just right at the right time, right place. Definitely. Yeah. Now, is this the interview where you spoke the least in history? Well, this is one. That's for sure. Uh, Indra. <laughs> well, I hope but, it came off good. I, I, I tell you, to, like, this is no, it. this is by far one of my top tens. I tell you that this has been, God, this has been a fantastic night, man. I have loved well, every. Let me bit tell you, I don't even know if I want to bring this up. Like every I twist and turn, and up and I, down. Somebody else been described so worth it. Somebody else described it. You know, somehow a few a week or so ago, I zoomed into the first thing I did, right? And I'm not going to get into it. The next thing you know, I was on there a couple times. I thought it was all right. I said maybe I talked over people a little. I wasn't so good at that etiquette. But next thing you know, I was on some totally unrelated show watching and in chat, somebody's like, oh, why did you get 86 through all this? I was like, no, oh, that's news to me. Like, I'll, I'll stop here. And I, I sometimes, you've started your show where you've explained some crazy drama that gets started. And, you know, I, I'm so removed from all that. I didn't, and then just in a week, just a little bit, I realized, holy moly, I felt like, like exactly like you, like somehow I, somebody didn't like whatever it, didn't mean anything to me like fine i like i it's not i don't i i don't care right but um yeah i it made me realize yeah uh you got to be careful how you step around here <laughs> it shouldn't be it really shouldn't be like that no you know but I mean? you know what shouldn't be and what is is always a world apart. <clears throat> and look, I'm involved in in a few other communities, mainly Grateful Dead. If you want to read some crazy chat and some crazy shit, right? Like, first off, you wouldn't even under, like the levels of drama and the levels of history of the drama and certain people. Like, I'm also part of a group of people called Railers. Okay. That means we want to be on the rail or front row. And the politics and the crazy there is like on a level that you can't even imagine. I'm also part of like surfing community. Not that I surf anymore, but surfing big. And their chats and their uh, live shows and streams, holy crazy. 
So like in the last few weeks, when people are talking a lot about the drama or things in chat here, I'm, I'm like, wow, like these guys never seen what, well, maybe they have, but like, that's the internet. That's like part of it. Like even why, like, oh, I'll probably go maybe watch, but even when you rewatch these, I don't think it gives you the whole chat, even in, when you rewatch. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But, no, no, no. It's available. Right. After well, this, you'll be able to go back and watch everything. Say, but, but like, I'm oh, go back and watch. I suggest well, it because everybody has said fantastic things tonight. I, well, out of I'm glad all nights I can. I can't I say that every episode. Maybe people but might this not one? understand my snarkiness and stuff, and hopefully this <laughs> brings it out. But like, there's a times when I'm not a troll. I don't think I'm a troll, but I say things that other people think are uh, that I'm a troll. But I'm not a troll. I just say, and a lot of it is maybe the the sense of I don't have a sense of humor. I have a sense of sarcasm, and I, like one thing I realize about text and DMs, yeah it's almost eliminates sarcasm. Like you really got to know somebody good to be able to do sarcasm on social or text or whatever. Uh, because unless you know, I say things like that a certain way, then it, the words on their own seem trolly, but a lot of it's just sarcasm, which I don't know. And that's what I think, wait, I think there's a, and hey, I noticed in this, you don't have to name names because the people that, that are guilty of it, they know. I think there's some serious posing going on, okay? Like serious posing. So whatever that's worth. And if you understand what I mean or not, like I get it, there's money to be made. And we're in the middle of what he called the gold rush, the green rush. And, and like, I got a thing that there's too many salary seekers there's way too many squares that all of a sudden decided cannabis was their place in life. And, you know, I, I guess it's just because I come from this like certain thing. And a lot of my peers, they've thrown in the towel in disgust. Like guys, I never thought would stop growing, right? Over the years, a lot of it was they weren't willing to change. And even in my thing, most of my friends in, in cannabis are like in their 30s, right? Um, yeah, because they're where it's at. Like in some of my friends that are disgruntled and can't stand cannabis, it's because they can't like be open to that. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it's hard to, maybe I'm not explaining it right, but some of it is straight the price. Like, you know, I had friends that had like told me a long time in advance, oh, if it ever goes below this price, I'm out. And sure enough, they're out. During all that, that's why I call myself a lifer. Okay. I don't care if it's $5. I like, well, I always have to grow because I need it for myself. But um, no. And, and, you know, there's one other influential person that I never really know. We DM each other. But there's this guy named Ken trichrome incorporated guy and when i was at all those events i rarely had time to sit in a panel but it was super hot at like some san bernardino event like brutally hot and i went in a panel and it was that guy speaking 
since like in 2013, something like that. And basically, he said, the cannabis is unique in agriculture because it carries terpenes from A to Z. And terpenes, and some of them are the most valuable commodity on the planet. And that when weed becomes $50 a pound, it'll be more valuable as a terpene or, or, or extract, like other industries, like people that farm rosemary, they don't farm it for terpenes, they farm it for essential oil or extract, but it's all kind of the same thing. But like rosemary has, smells like rosemary and produces this. Cannabis, that's why we have flavors from A to Z and even who knows, infinity of flavors, it seems like. Like just keeps coming more and more and that's different terpenes and different combinations of terpenes and all that. And if you ever really, I mean, they're mainly TV ads that are bullshit, but like General Mills and the big food companies, you know, when they show their white coat guy, the chemist food thing, that guy works with terpenes because what they do, every product, they disassemble the product all the way down to strip it of everything and then rebuild it. That's how they keep, uh, you know, even a Dorito isn't a real chip. No, it's some mush they make that's exactly the same every day, every day of the year. No matter if the corn crop went bad, good, doesn't matter because they strip everything and then they build it back up with basically terpenes, right? So when you see a General Mills food lab and the guy's got all this stuff, yeah, he's got access to every terpene there is. That's what they play with. Right. That's why they're so valuable. Right. So, yeah, I, I think there is some people, very few. Somebody told me this. I, I don't know the exact that have done that, that have actually ma mainly in the hemp, not so much THC cannabis, but have started to, to use the crop strictly for that. Oh, now they also extract the other things. But. And I don't the numbers were way back in that. Uh, when Ken gave this uh, panel, he was he had numbers. He had just done a study in Israel with with uh, two hundred. I mean, one hundred pound, twenty percent THC. This is so many years ago. The terpene percent wasn't really part of it, but he had extracted X amount of terpenes out and 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 had this whole equation of how much that was worth, right? Which was a lot. Um, so, you know, now will people end up being able to do that? Or is that what the big corporations are capable of doing? And most likely, yeah, some small guy isn't going to be able to get a, a scale to compete in the turpentine business, but some big operation with 10,000, 100,000 acres could do that. But the plant itself. Yeah, it has like more, more applications than just get high and stuff. And since I mentioned him one time a few minutes ago, if I remember, and I must have been to a dozen Jack Hare uh, speeches, most of the time I wasn't paying that much attention. We were smoking weed with people and 
doing a whatever off to the side and stuff. But if you listen to Jack Hare, he didn't give a shit about getting high and, and, and all that. He was about one thing, industrial hemp. And all these years later, in the thousands, tens of thousands of acres of hemp, and the way hemp can be grown, there's no processing. There's no, we're not like, oh, there's a couple of niche things with clothing and a couple things, but on a big scale, like, like no one, like we shouldn't use wood for paper towels and toilet paper, like hemp could be used to, like, you know, all these, everybody knows all these things, but we've made no progress. And even all this stuff that's being grown is like being grown for CBD and this and that. And no one even, because there's nowhere to process the, 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 the material that would then be used. I mean, I don't know, like it's so much like plastic, but it's gotta be over 10 years ago. I have this scale that I bought that says that it's 100% made from hemp. But it's like plastic, right? Maybe, maybe it's not. It might just be plastic. No, I think it is. It, why isn't that like taking over everything? Like, and that it's it's it could be grown so fast and with so little water and create so many products industrially. And that's kind of like oh you open this can of worms and then you get back to like what started all this with our government is, oh, they wanted to eradicate that to make room for rubber and petroleum and all these other things. We already had all this at one point in our human history, but our government manipulated and, and put their hand on, on the wheel of it and it doesn't look like, even though now it's more important than ever environmentally and oil and all the issues, it's like a no brainer. Like even as far as diesel fuel and all these things and so many things. And then ultimately Jack Kerr would be rolling over in his grave that the cannabis movement has moved this far and we haven't budged or barely budged on him that's a travesty and and a lot of that goes back to the same reasons the corporate the, the all those things and those are the same people that have their eyes on our our thing our you know which has been the people's thing for so many years like i read a book once upon a time that was like about economy it was really heavy economist and in this book, like they acknowledge and write about the black economy, the vice economy, how important it is to the world, to hand to mouth, to the poor. And that it wasn't their point, but what I got out of this one chapter was like everything else in the, in the vice economy is super negative from, from harder narcotics to prostitution to to everything, but cannabis has been there and has done more for more people 
over so many years. Like, and I've been around, like I, I made my life off of the middleman guy. They don't exist anymore. We wiped them out, right? That was like the first thing that was legalization. You know, no more of those guys. Why have those guys? You got Uncle Sam instead. But that had more to do with like somebody being able to not, like some people, hey, it's the dollar they need. It's the $5 they need to, to make it through the day. And, and with, with that, that cannabis was that all over the world still is in some places, but legalization is sort of going to take that away and um, leave nothing but like vice that is bad. And, and, People end up in that, not always by choice. You know, when when you're trying just to get by and the whole game and the rig is stacked against you, well, then, you know, and now that you've taken the opportunity of people go, well, maybe if I can't get a job, I can try to, you know, sell weed or something. That's not an option. So, oh, well, I guess I'm going to sell what? So, you know, I don't know if that makes a point to anyone, but like that's important and that's probably more important to our healthy economy than giving them 40 percent to blow on whatever the fuck taxes or whatever they spend it on which is most likely and even in california we already have two different things where they they're they're calling grants but there there's a hundred million dollars now no one's actually got much of the money because the Things you have to do to uh, apply and to get it is, is bullshit. But but there's a first a thirty million dollar one and then a hundred million dollar one grants. Those are subsidies. Okay, you can call them grants, but even the wording is is these are for people struggling and the legal business is struggling and need help getting their licenses right and all this. They can get grants. Um, yeah, most every part of agriculture is subsidized because that's the only way you can keep, you know, the price of a tomato being affordable considering it all or wheat or so many things, you know, I also my big Neil Young guy and Willie Nelson guy, and farm aid has been a part of my life. And, you know, I used to hear all that stuff at farm aid and be like, oh, I feel bad for those farmers, kind of knowing I was really one just like it, but we, we had our, we weren't in that. We weren't, those things weren't our problems yet. The banks, the investors, the seed, the Monsanto, all the things that basically since 1985, even though this, we had these festivals, we raised money, we raised awareness, they just rolled right over us. And we still have farm aid and, we still say the same things, but the war's over. They won. They did it. There's, there's very few, like, whatever you call them, mom and pops, whatever. Um, and even the few that are, are just stooges of, of the system, right? Um, we're, we're now, when you listen to the speeches from all the years of Farm Aid, cannabis is now one of those farm crops that all the things they're 
telling is going to happen in that industry that did happen is is going to be applied to us as farmers and that means subsidize the crops and you know do all this craziness because with federal legalization comes one thing that most people aren't like really in their radar but just like pork bellies and orange juice and just about anything worth anything in our country goes through the mercantile uh, commodities market. And basically that setup is that people can long and short, right? And by the time a, a farmer um, gets his crop done, investors, whether he did a good or he did bad, have already chopped up most of the profits and, and are off spending it because they shorted him or they longed him, right? It's all about that, right? And, and that is our system that is used to regulate interstate commerce, regulate in what's happening right now, supply and demand or, or production, right? They stated in California recently, I read, that they suggest, they don't know exactly, that we produce X amount of tons, I think it was like 60 tons or 60 hundred, whatever it was, huge amount of weed for California. Two thirds more than we consume. So we had that amount more, right? Well, because there was no regulation. There was nobody saying, oh, even the licenses don't give you a way to opt out and go, hey, it's a glut market. So we only want to exercise 10,000 square feet right now. No, because they don't trust you. So it's an either or, you either exercise your license and pay it for us all, or you lose your license. Because they don't know if you say, oh, I'm just going to plant 10,000. They don't know if you're not going to plant 20,000, just say you planted 10,000. You know, that's how, that's how they think. They don't trust us, right? So then everything to do with it is based on that. We're a wheat farmer, a corn farmer, dairy farmer. Oh, they trust them. Like they, you know what I mean? Not like us where we must be trying to scam them. So, you know, I'm seeing this year that they, they never encountered that what happens when there's like an overproduction, how are we going to have a system that's going to allow the, these people to cut back to level that off? There isn't one, right? The way you do it is like, especially outdoor. Oh, you declare how much you actually pay before you and the crop that's like crazy right but we're a lot like we're accepting it because well i guess it's something better than nothing or maybe we think we're going to be able to like get better legislation going forward but the truth is just look at who you're dealing with politicians they're already bought and paid for and 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 even in this, even though there's millions of dollars being made, like other industries have super PACs, right? Like gun industry, whatever. They, all the players put up huge amounts of money to lobbyists that they all can agree on. And then that's how laws get made. Cannabis industry, the big players are competing against each other. They're not worried about, oh, hey, I'll put up a million. You put up two million and this guy put up. And now we have this money that we can go to Washington and lobby with. Now it'd be great if that's not, if we live in a country that 
that wasn't the system. But that is the system. And money is the voice and all that. And 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 cannabis industry has a ton of money, but there's nobody, you know, and even a lot of these people, like a lot of times people just like George Soros, right? You know. Okay, but this is the kind of billionaire that you need to have that opens up his purse strings because he supports an idea. Like Hugh Hefner was that for cannabis, but he's gone. But he didn't have the kind of money that a billionaire has. Like even I know from, from my own, Elon Musk is a total stoner, smokes weed all the time, wants the best weed just like anybody. He's the type of guy that has so much money that if he believed that in anything, he would open his purse strings and, and that would make the difference. And you look at a lot of the, 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 the things that have that power. Yeah, a lot of times in today's world, it's because some billionaire, Warren Buffett, whoever, like supported it enough to say, yeah, I got it. Because there is no price when it comes to this lobbying stuff. You have to have enough money to make it happen, which is who knows, because whoever's going against you, it's, a, it's whose money's longer. And, and right now, it's the same reason that like in lawsuits, cannabis people won't stand a chance because the companies have lawyers in for days and, and they know that they'll just win by attrition, right? So whatever any of that's worth. And I don't know, to be honest, I don't know nothing about any of that. <laughs> I wish, I wish I did no more, but these are thoughts that come to my head. Pretty, pretty on point, you know, you're right in so many ways, you know, uh, as far as uses of the plants, uh, it is, just basically recreational medical there's no industrial uses being had and, and there's almost no medical like, oh man don't even get me started there right real. and and to be um, honest like don't think that the the pharmaceutical industry is going to give up one share of any of their current positions in mental health drugs or anything right and no. so and if you it, know, I honestly think of that this whole recreational thing has been a a purposeful sway against medical cannabis be, because of that. The farmers market has very so much money to fucking lose. We're fighting. You know what against. I mean? We're we're not as smart yeah. as the people we're fighting against. These people are corporate. They're educated. They're evil. And they're like a step ahead of us, man. And they understand how to like manipulate. And one thing I've seen over my whole time as being a stoner, we're a pretty gullible group, you know? And, and it's because we want, we usually lead with our heart is the problem there, bro. Yeah, but they <laughs> like all these things are things they know and will be taken advantage of. And they already have. That, that, that it's already happening. It's, it's like, it's not something that's coming. It's something that we're actually in the middle of the eye of it. And, and, and it didn't 
I always thought, I thought this stuff. I used to tell my friends years ago when this was coming, things like this were coming, but I always thought it would take them 20 or 30 years. You know, and I don't know if it's just you get old and all of a sudden time goes by faster. Some people tell me that, but I got to tell you, holy moly, time goes by so fast. Like, I remember, like, I've always been waiting 60 days for a crop or or two months for a next concert tour or something. And it used to take so long to get to those days. Now, it's done in a couple of days, like in, in the scheme of things, because time goes by so fast. And, and that's part of the new world we live in, where we've sped up time. Like, even though it's still 24 hours a day or whatever, somehow, like maybe it's just when you get older, becomes like a tunnel vision on time but like i couldn't even put my finger on it how fast i I feel like time goes by now than it used to it does i can remember going oh yeah i'm right down on the calendar oh 60 days from now and that's what i always write down and that doesn't mean it comes down exactly in 60 days but that's the easiest for me to keep track of right well, actually, I write down on the side of the wall. I don't keep the calendar. What date I set it, and then I look at that and add sixty days, and then that's when I start to think about taking care. But I can remember for so many years, setting and going, oh, "Man, that's going to take forever," and waiting each of those days for it to finally be done. To now, it's like a flash goes by and it's already done, even though sixty days went by. It, it trips me out. Yeah, it's, yeah it's part weird. of being it, a grower. And it was the hardest thing in the beginning was patience. I had no patience, none. I like, and I, I think that's a common thing, especially for people in the United States. Like we have no patience. We want it now or yesterday. And, and with cannabis, the first thing I had to learn was, yeah, you do your work today and it doesn't pay off for you know, two months or longer, three months. Um, but now, after so many years, I'm used to it. But at the beginning, yeah, that was a hard one. Like, and I used to remember thinking and looking at how long it was going to take and thinking that was so long. But now it's the opposite. Like, I realized, oh, I'll be smoking that in a minute. We'll be ready. <laughs> <clears throat> you know uh but i was gonna say there the whole thing about time it is going by faster and faster the whole concept that we base time on light and shit like that we now have realized we can move faster there's something faster than the speed of light you know what i mean the whole time one of the things we base it concept yeah, of I time mean- on now we I'm can open. move faster. I actually than. think that our answer you know to I... energies, our answer to the energy, somewhere in that, in the time, in that, that energy field or something, like the part we're missing or the dimension we're missing, why we are like, like using fuel or or even battery or whatever. No, there's this other energy it's there. It's just right there, but we can't even tap it because we can't even think of it 
I don't even think it's that, to be honest with you. I think it's more back to everything you said earlier, you know, about being held up with the uses of cannabis uh, and all that. It's, it's, it's the powers that be. We're, they're not done juicing us all for the petrodollar and shit like that. Uh, mineral mineral resources and shit like that. We had the idea, Tesla, you know, you brought him up earlier, had the idea of zero point energy way back when. And now it's being pushed more and more further. You know, it's out there. All these ideas, they're just, well, again, even, even like with cannabis. Thing, you would think that it wouldn't be the place of like soul innovation at this point. Like you'd think maybe... It, NASA and other places, but Formula One, which I'm a big fan of Formula One since I was a kid, literally is where the cutting edge of like most technology for the last so many years, at least a lot of technology. But like the one thing I was going to point out is like they went from hybrid. They like all the things we end up with in our cars, especially usually start in Formula One from weird braking to all the different things. But the hybrid thing started there. But do you realize in today, they don't use high, but they call it that, but they're actually harnessing G-forces. Like, like when the car turns or brakes, they're capturing that energy because it's energy, right? So it's not just the Excel energy that you first have to Excel to capture that energy, right? No, they're capturing energy in every way, right? Like in all three, you know, 360 degrees. Now the braking, okay, that's a lot of energy there. But when they go into a corner and they hit like 3.6 Gs or four Gs, G forces get converted into energy that ends up in the battery. Like that's pretty heavy. Like that, that, like that's some pretty good innovation there. You know, now where that goes, who knows, you know, but well. There's other ways now, too. I mean, why can't there be solar panels on top of the cars? You know, or all that. Now, like, I remember years ago, you know, LG paints paint. now that, yeah, we're just paints in China. Like you can just paint it on the roof and then plug it in and it's solar. I mean, but then that's been like invented and, but like anything, oh, the rare minerals or the things that make this, they're not as sustainable or, you know, there's, hey, look, we can like boil it all down and, and come to one thing. And this is where I think, I They're think the earth might have over. the resources to support about three to 4 billion people, right? And even that we'd have to be pretty in, ingenuitive to do. But we're at seven, Bill, crossing eight on the way to 10. No that the math doesn't work. There's not enough resources. There's not. There's not enough water. There's not enough fuel. There's not enough sun. There's not enough everything, it's, right? It, right? For that many people on this planet, that's only this big with this amount of resources. And until some of these, and uh, hey, this gets crazy because like, how do you talk about resources. trying to, to cut the population because the whole economy is based on growth. Like every city needs to grow 
population by a teeny bit, percent or so, to be considered like a healthy economy city. So that's why they have to build so many more houses. They, like growth, everything's growth. Country's got to grow, state's got to grow, city's got to grow. Well, I, yeah, we can't keep that. It, you know, I, and I was, there both is of though, us were, were, but... were raised in a time when we basically, before China was bad for whatever reasons, when I was a kid, they were bad because you, I forget, if you could only have one kid, it has to be a male or a girl. They had some weird, like, yeah, I get it, that that law was like inhumane, okay? Yeah. Right? Whatever that was, which, which actually was their way of controlling their population, right? So when I was a teenager, that, that was, they were under like, uh, whatever, it, it was talked about that it was human uh they were breaking like human uh like other countries whatever but they didn't never really change i guess they've changed a little now but let's just say that from that period of time china put out the average amount of people other countries do or we do well we would be in a real problem now because china wouldn't just have a billion and a half or whatever they got they would have like three times that. And then maybe they would be an aggressive military power trying to, because eventually when there is no resources, that's, that's, when, that's when real war happens. In our lifetime, we're like, war over what? Eventually it's gonna be war over everything that somebody's got, right? Because that's, that's what, how war started. It wasn't like you fought and then said, oh, okay, no. The loser surrendered everything they had, right? And, and eventually, when one country doesn't have, even like Russia and people are saying, well, why is Putin doing this and what? Well, he's probably further along into a collapse of his economy, one of the major ones in our world. Obviously, when you see his military have bald tires and all this stuff, like, Hey, I live right next to the biggest Marine base there is. And like all I see in town are these big flatbeds delivering, especially since we left all the stuff in, a, in Afghanistan. And I, I didn't realize, but these Humvees that are outfitted for the Marines cost like multi-millions of dollars just because they have like armored on them. But they find the stuff constantly, constantly, like, I live by the back gate, so they're always that's they don't on the coast where they're where everyone sees them. That's like a fake. The real guts of Pendleton's on the backside, and and where they actually you see stuff that makes you realize, holy moly! Like even this base has a quarter million people on it every day. Most of them training to go kill people around the world, and then ultimately here i'm a hippie so i i'm against all war period but whatever sometimes shit has to happen i, I i'm not that nice but um we have we we're we're used the numbers to not say a trillion but we're like an eight to nine hundred billion dollars a year in our military budget it used to be, the first time I heard this stat, 
it was five countries. The top five countries, military, doesn't equal ours. That went to seven. And recently, I heard it say 10. So 10 of the biggest countries' military doesn't equal ours. And in my lifetime, I was too young to know who won what in Vietnam. But I've seen enough to realize Vietnam seems to be about how Afghanistan and Iraq went. And we definitely didn't win those, sorry to say. And in my mind, Afghanistan and Iraq was the equivalent of fighting either Serenios or the Crips, okay? You were fighting a street gang equivalent when it started as far as money, equipment, what they had. They weren't even a government or anything. And the biggest military with a trillion dollars couldn't do shit, right? Here we are against whatever Ukraine. If we got all, oh, what? We can't do nothing because we're too afraid this could lead to the, whatever the reason is, the, we're handcuffed. So now over my whole life, we spent trillion after trillion after trillion after trillion. But the real reality is that the military being as big and powerful as it is at a certain point becomes useless. It's so big, it's so powerful that ultimately it, it, it can't even handle in the street game. And oh, if, if, if Afghanistan weren't street games, I mean, the Taliban, like we, how did they end up knocking us out of there or what? There's always more to it, right? But ultimately, our military, which I'm 100% American, and if our military has to be used, let's get it on. And I support that. So I, like, I'm not like against all that. Well, I am against it, like on a bigger scale, because I still remember that one president said, watch out for the industrial military complex, right? Well, that's exactly what this is, right? And even from our government's weirdness of how they think, all governments across the world somehow in the last hundred years have come to this idea that when the economy's fucked and it's depression and inflation and all this, the best, easiest, sure solution is war. There's one example in the last hundred years of history that that was true, and that's World War II. Okay, we were out of the present, whatever, and you can see that all the war thing was like a spark and it built the economy and it helped other countries, whatever. But every other one has been the exact opposite effect. But somehow, even right now, in Russia, that's look, that's where we're at. Like that's the military industrial conflict because I know that like any good corporation or any big city, growth is everything. And so for the military, they know they need to ask for more than 900 billion next year. I see this every year here. The same time that the, the Congress goes through the same bullshit about approving the budget there's always this stall and this side and that side. But that's when the budget for the year for the military is winding down. So in this like one month when that is where the budget is, 
they literally are blowing up everything they can. I sometimes live in a war zone out here. Tonight it's quiet. It's been since since uh uh Ukraine. It's kind of scary because I've lived out here nine years, and there's always war games and whatever training. The the range, the helicopters on a daily basis. Well, the last three weeks, you can hear pin drop. Any other stuff over the years, oh, it only upped the activity out there. This time, they must really be thinking something, or they need to save what they got, or or don't waste any any bullets out here. We might need them there or something because they're not training in the last three weeks. And, uh, but yeah, that's, that's our real, that's what we have to stop. And in the politics get crazy because of even both sides, if any of them even mention cutting a budget for the military, that's the end of your they, career. You will not be reelected, so, you know, that's so like, and, and when we look at it, you can look at all the individual things, but the thing that's messing up the world, and, and especially our world, the United States, is this massive military industrial complex. Even the fact so, that they make so much crap that their best idea is, let's give it to the cops, the stuff we don't use, and then they can become more militarized in, in trying to... Um, um, enforce laws in their cities. And, and we've seen the repercussions of that, right? Where, yeah, some cities are like, yeah, over the littlest thing, they come in in their tactics. And even at this point, I don't know, but I, most cops I see seem like they're straight out of the military. And Buddy, so I- Everything you're saying stems from the same source. From the original fucking concept of the bankers when fucking the Rothschilds and all that banking note concept came about, they funded war. They funded conflict. They funded both sides. They profited it off it the whole way through time. They still are profiting from funding like both sides. That's why they... That's why they encourage bigger and bigger military so they can be borrowing more and more money from them to be, you know what I mean? More and more in control. They're over. It's still the same problem right down the line. It's the same powers that be that are holding us back from the, the technologies that can set us free. The zero point energy. Moreover, us self-sustaining ourselves you know what i mean there's that's the biggest thing they don't want is us self-sustaining ourselves growing our own foods growing our own medicines learning how to fucking and again there is a i kind of going going back to what you said about not being able not they're not being enough resources to sustain there is my friend i especially if we move forward to the, what they're trying to hold us back to the zero point energy and stuff like that 
they can fucking, well, you know what I mean? Once we're kind of holding back, we move forward to the zero point energy. We stop using our fossil fuels and our those type coals and shit like that. We have those banking up again. And then we start moreover growing more and more foods for ourselves. The whole meat market was pushed to us in the late 50s and 60s. Back before, you know, the early 90s and stuff, you grew, you had a fucking, you grew what you ate. You had a small farm if you wanted meat. You know what I mean? It wasn't, you know, steaks on the fucking table every fucking night for, you know what I mean? There's a lot of over. If we were to cut back on that, we would have more and more water to sustain and shit. If we thought more responsibility in a lot of ways, we could sustain in a lot of bigger numbers, I think. You know, not to disagree well, with you, but it's the well, same people that yeah, it's the same, 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 same. There is you a, know there what is I mean? a threshold. <laughs> there has to be a threshold, right? Like that would like if you look at that, that would mean, well, that would mean there's just unlimited people could fit inside this VW. No, only about 19 or whatever the record is. Right. Right. The earth is that way, too. Right. Right. I mean, it, it's there has to be a number now, maybe. It's higher than 10 billion. Maybe it is 20 billion. I don't know. But is it 50 billion? No. Who knows? And I don't know. I mean, I guess if we start living in the ocean and went underground and a whole bunch of things that are, I mean, even when you talk about energy, and I already know that I've heard people say that, no, the concept is solid, but there's very little of it. But the tide in the ocean, it goes in, it goes out. It goes in, it goes out. So, like, that be like endless energy, right? That you, you know, just like a windmill or just like any, okay? So there's the ocean, you know, you know, you know, right? Tides. Um, well, we hardly, we hardly always... harvest any of that energy, but I'm pretty sure that's like enough energy for everybody a hundred times over if we learned how to harness it. You know, I did. I when I was a kid, I that's where I thought of it. To be honest with you, and this is how I envisioned it. I may be giving away fucking too much of an idea. It's basically I envisioned a power box sitting on basically a pier with an arm that floated down and caught that wave action with a flywheel. You know what I mean? Just like on a bicycle. How I can, you know what I mean? But each what each time, each push, it pushes that wheel that spins a generator. You know what I mean? So it's every wave passing, it spins a wheel, and then on the back freehand, you know what I mean? The free wheel, it lets it come back, reset. Free wheel come back. Well, I, I'll give you an but example. Keep spinning of, that wheel. You know what I mean? As a kid, I protested at this place over here called San Onofre. You might never heard of it, but it's a, it's a nuclear power plant that's existed in San Clemente, I guess since the 60s. And it's even weird because it looks like two boobs, okay? It's two of the things. But when you learn the history of it, the one was engine built backwards. So they didn't realize it till it was like almost done so one of them isn't even ever worked because it's actually the concrete, everything backwards, okay? <laughs> Somehow they built it backwards, way back when. But so they have the one. And 
yeah, it's been an issue. And even when you got surfed over there, it used to be the water was warmer because they send this pipe out to cool or whatever. But San Diego got like 30% of our power came from it. Or maybe it's not 30, 20, good amount. So brilliant idea they had so many years ago, they decommissioned the place, right? So our power rates go up through the roof and uh, it's closed. Well, back to Zooey, Zooey had friends that worked there even when it was active. They knew the one guy, nuclear engineer, right? Actually, I mean, whatever, used to get some smoke from us, right? And was like in charge of fucking running the fucking nuclear power plant, but whatever. Uh, he still works there and most likely or worked there his whole life. And even though they've taken it offline, I mean, this is the this is the part that's like, because the other day I actually was by there and I see like the massive lines of big, thick power that go across the freeway and head to the big lines. And those don't have any power in it anymore. Like they decommissioned it. But the why people will work there forever because it's still cooking and they monitor it. They, you know, like they don't want it to melt down. So there's, you know, it's a lot less than used to work there, but there's a pretty big staff that works there 24 hours a day, keeping sure, making sure this thing does. And as much as like, it's a weird thing. I, as a kid protested, now it's finally shut down. Now I pay extra for the power i'm like fire that thing back up like what the fuck it's gonna it, it's it's a threat either way right like that's the part like oh now build a new one i might have to get my protest shoes back on right but i don't understand like hey especially once you understand that they will be monitoring it and it's not like it it it, it turns off and they get to take it apart and even so many years ago, they had this brilliant idea. They were going to take the spent stuff and ship it to some mountain in Colorado, which that created this political thing in Colorado, and they rejected it. But even that they were going to move it on trains all that way. But So they got all the spent rods there, too. Now, wait. Now, Sasamis or whatever, big waves. That's not something we're that afraid of, but we have earthquakes in California. The new power plant on the coast. One thing I've learned about the coast, it's always eroding. Okay. So like what in a hundred years, the coast is going to be different. A thousand years, it's totally different. So like to build something that has to be there forever is pretty stupid. Right. But now that it's built, like, yeah, turn the power back on, but that will never happen. Like, you know, and a lot of it is, it was a political thing. The people, without really understanding what they were voting on, voted to decommission it and pay for the more power. Because, but I think the average person thinks that the place was going to be dismantled and it was going to go back to being a beach one day. No, it, that place will be there as long as humanity's here. That's, that's, that's why nuclear, well, I've heard, in France, they got smaller ones and, you know, there's, 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 I don't know. I mean, maybe nuclear is an answer in some things. I Aren't know that coal trans and 
And, and some of the ways There's we a, produce power in the United States are definitely not the way anymore. And, and, and story. over the long haul, create more problems than the risk of, and that's the other thing. We haven't built a new modern type of nuclear thing in like 30 or 40 years, right? And because of the political climate around it, like, which in part is because as a young person, a bunch of people, hippies mainly, really protested that. But we also protested cutting down redwoods and we protested this, we protested, and yeah, I wish I was older and said, yeah, we made a difference. We really did. But looking back, other than, obviously we made some difference. It's just hard to see it. But then today, I'm, like I said, I'm friends with a lot of people that are 30 years old. They don't have that same, like, like they've beaten us down into submission to a point that they don't even think that protesting is an option or, or like voice <laughs> against it. They're just consigned that it's the way it is. Uh, not everybody, but, you know, and a lot of that's because we have distractions. You know, I also always say this thing because, you know, I don't know if this is how, you know, the data and these numbers, especially in this misinformation world, I realize it's just shit. But who knows what's true, what's not, anything true, anything not. But the tenth of 1%, which is our biggest problem, that's supposedly 10,700, not just individuals, because there's still old money in the game, dude. You know, like they're not always so open about who they are, but there's money that's hundreds of years old. That's part of, that hasn't made any new money in generations, but still rolling off the big money they got back in whatever shit that went down 200, 300, 400 years ago, right? Pirate loot, all that shit. Um, but if God, and I'm not, a really, I don't even believe that shit, but if God showed up, had a meeting, called these 10,700 people, said, hey, I'm here. I had to come because if you guys don't do X, Y, and Z, here, I'll show you. Here's the future the earth and you got this amount of time those people would go home sleep on it and decide that they would rather live the next eight months in their bubble of richness than to do any of these things like that's what i actually and these are the people that actually think that, that god is why they got the money and they believe god but if god told them hey and if you go back i know history likes to say oh, the Romans collapsed because of this and Egyptians this and that. But I look at it and go, every time that the 1% or the 10th of the 1% pushed too far, the regular people overthrew themselves to where they, even if the whole society died, they were willing to have that because they weren't going to take that. And we're at that point right now. We're actually past that point. I don't think any other time in human history has the wealth gap or whatever they call that between this, like, oh, it's not 1%, it's the 10th of 1%. So 
realistically, all these bad decisions, all these things that we're not able to get a handle on are the decisions or the motivation or the created by 10,000 people, human beings, out of 7 billion. Whether they're in Abu Dhabi, wherever, Beverly Hills, wherever they, wherever they lay their head at night. My girlfriend, the last three years, works in Abu Dhabi for 15 years. She, she's Filipino. A lot of Filipinos do the work in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. But for, I haven't gone there. I'm too afraid. Hey, two years ago when I almost jumped on a plane, I pulled up this weird high times list of like pot-friendly countries or whatever. It's still on Google. The last country is the UAE, the bottom of the list. And it says, don't even think about it. <laughs> Their drug laws are so fucking crazy. And it's a police state of mass proportion, meaning, yeah, like you get 3D body scans when you're there and their CCTV basically, oh, mass, no mass. They got you through the eye retina. They, but the big point is, and I see a lot of day-to-day -day life there and we FaceTime and all that. They're living in the Jetson. They're actually living this modern world that as a kid, we saw in the movies and thought like, oh, the U.S. will be there. We're going to, I go up to L.A. and it's, it's so beat up, so gray, our bridges, our roads, like just terrible. And it's not like we're going to have the money or I don't ever know if we're ever going to better bring that back. One, that's one of the problems when you have like old infrastructure and stuff where the UAE, they were only put in existence like less than 50 years ago and with a ton of money. But like they're living in the modern world and most of the really rich people, yeah, especially, I mean, Americans, not as many Americans over there, but the super rich from every other country, that's where they are. Like even she, she runs a department in a five-star hotel. Their bookings were uh, the highest they've ever been, meaning it was sold out because when COVID hit, anybody with enough money, they knew where they wanted to go there, right? And so like on any given day, the highest percentage of that one-tenth of 1%, one that's their playground, right? It's, and the only reason that exists is because we gave just about all of our money to Saudi Arabia for oil, okay? <laughs> These guys got like money. Like we talk about Bezos being rich and this other guy being rich. Man, those, that Arab family and that Saudi Arabia thing, like they got money beyond. They, they got long, right? <laughs> the things you see built there and the modernness of it and how perfect the streets are and how every system is like brand new. It's crazy. I'm like, we're the richest country in the world. Why don't we have that? Yeah, that's the biggest lie ever that we're the richest country in the world. But whatever. But I would like to be able to go there. You know, something back to the thing with, with, with weed. Now you can Google this story. So the youth that, that live there, that 
are it's sort of like an Indian reservation where if you're a tribe member and you have an Indian casino, you get X amount of money per month. Okay, so the people that they recruited to build this country don't have to work. They get money, right, from the oil money or whatever. So most of them don't. Their kids, they don't either. But the youth there doesn't have access to cannabis. There's a little alcohol, but drugs aren't there. They've done a good job of that. But they have a crisis where the, the youth found that there's this ant, not all the ants, but this one ant, and you gotta smoke it while it's alive, right? You can't smash them up and smoke it. You gotta put them in the pipe while they're still alive. They smoke it and they get whatever high. Well, it's become a crisis because kids that used a bunch of that, like kids would do, have permanological uh, neuro damage. Because when they really tested why the kids were smoking this ant, yeah, they're smoking and why it has to be alive. They're like getting high off the neurotoxins that are in this ant. And, it, and it's not like other drugs that like even cocaine, heroin, they don't do permanent neuro damage, right? Use, well, maybe certain abuse might lead to something like that. But the average person, even if they were all messed up, a few years later, the brain's back semi-normal. Or back, not if you smoke these ants. And so it's a huge issue there. It's a crisis. And, uh, and to me, it's an example of like, even if you figure out a way to keep all drugs out of your society, they're going to find something to get high in because humans, from the beginning of time, getting high is like a ritual. Thing. It's part of their thing. No matter what laws are made, what church says, whatever. Humans like to get high, not only humans, because then when they study animals, they find, oh, look, animals do this and animals eat this and do this and that. And, you know, we're not the only people chasing this frog around and or the only life chasing the frog around or, you know, different things. So even animals have their, their, their highs or whatever, but humans especially. So even if you completely strip the society of it, you would find, we'd find something. So even in our country, if we stripped everything, we would end up abusing something, most likely some poison or something worse for you than the things that they eliminated. But I, I can, in a country that's everything's going so perfect and they have no drug problems, oh, they have a neurotoxin problem. I think that's really funny. I was muted. It is a little funny. You know, I think it's weird why we do kind of chase that. I think it's because we're trying to find or ex that explain the things we don't know in some cases. Uh, definitely with psychedelics, I think that's the the draw there of destroying the ego and seeing something be beyond ourselves, that revelation. Well, like um, I said earlier, I when I raced go-karts, like I might have skipped over that, but it was pretty profound. Like, yeah, I've been, since I was 15 years old, basically chasing rushes, okay? Whether it was cocaine, this, that, or the other, right? 
And I was addicted to that. But never thought to find it anywhere else but through substance. Like I, that's, that was the only way I knew. But, and I guess for different people, it'd be different things. Somebody might be base jumping or it could be any number of things. Usually it has to have some kind of adrenaline or, or, or thrill to it. But yeah, when I, when I started racing, and that was like only so many years away from like active addiction. I was still like, you know, so many years, like five, seven years from, from using narcotics. Um, yeah, it was like, that was it. It was like, if I had found that when I was a kid, maybe I wouldn't have went to all these other ways, you know? But uh, that's how, like, even though I don't do it, I don't exercise, but I, I, I get it why people run or they do certain things and they don't need to, to, to smoke or, or drink or whatever. They, they're, they're happy just, you know, because they're getting different similar highs, but from natural things where, you know, some people choose to just use substances for, for that same effect. And uh, may, maybe when I was younger, I wouldn't have said that. But as I've gotten older, I realized, well, like they say, when people work out, they, it's like the same, they get a high and they get this and that. But, you know, um, some people use smoke weed and, and, and do both. Um, but myself, like, yeah, that was like a, that was 20 some 20 years ago though, but that was like a op wide opening to me. Like, like I didn't realize there was other ways to get like your fill of the rush. And no, I, I'm a daredevilish type. I mean, now I'm older. I'm, I don't want broken bones anymore. I think twice, but from the time I was a kid, you know, I'm a, I would try stupid stuff. I jumped off the roofs or what? I don't know. Yeah. You know, a lot of guys. Well, today's kids aren't so much that way. I grew up, both parents worked and the neighborhood was our, yeah, we used to get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> well, Mr. Buddy Kilowatt, we've hit our five hour mark. And I tell you I kind what, of had a feeling. I, I would fucking gladly go another five hours any other night, well, man. I'm always, uh, I, I know, hope... if you get hard up uh, for a guest or you get canceled, I'm usually just, except, you know, coming up, there's times I'm out doing some shows, but that's only a few days here and there. And, you know, um, but I'm, I'm usually just tuned in and hanging out and most nights I, I always got something to say, especially after today I had maybe double the amount of coffee normal, but like I said, I'm procrastinating lazy because I didn't want to be all nervous sitting at home waiting for this. Shoot. Today I went and did like, I went, I went to Walmart, which I hardly, had, I go there every once in a while, but I needed to, I went and did a bunch of errands. And uh, 
And last night, I went and did work in my room and got everything caught up. So it was like, gave me motivation. And for me, that's, that's, I can't put a price on motivation. And uh, the, your show and, and, and chat and different cannabis uh, content, um, I think supplies a lot of us with, with motivation. Even people that are newer in this that don't realize uh, they need motivation. But like, I'll put you this way. I've made tens of thousands of reservoirs of water. I've defoliated, I've bucketed so many times the same thing over and over and over that at a certain point, it's like, even though I love it, I do, I love it. I couldn't think of anything more I'd rather do. It's hard to like, yeah, you get burnt out on shit. Like even a couple of my friends that are trying to make them their way in this industry and in my mind like, are in an unsustainable thing because yeah, they use social media or different things that they have to pound to keep the, the, the thing going, right? Uh, I'm like, yeah, you're going to be still doing this in five and 10 years, you know, because well, some people aren't in it for life. They're in it for as long as they're in it. And that's fine. Some of us know we're here for life. And uh, um, I think that's an that's important distinction because uh, especially when it comes to methods and stuff, I'm for all methods and most of them I've tried. And one last thing I wanna plug Maybe there's a deadhead out there that's not aware of this, but there's a product line, and I've never heard anything bad about them. It's called Bio 365. You ever heard of their soil or their product line? Mm -hmm. They're a living soil, yes. bag soil, whatever. They got a bunch of stuff. Well, majority, nah, I don't know if it's majority stakeholder, but definitely a big stakeholder who owns that company is Bob Weir of the Grateful Dead. He invested way back with another person that's the CEO of that company and all that. But Adam, if you need a reason to support a product and you're a deadhead, yeah, Bio365. Bob Weir is the owner of that company. And uh, I have no other like ties to any other I don't have a tie to them other than I think it's cool that that uh, one of the members of the Grateful Dead believed in a living soil product so much that he put out some millions to make it happen. <laughs> That's awesome. That is. Now, you're not a deadhead. I have heard of that. You've never I'm been? Listening. Are you you seen like I'm even listening. the post-Jerry era or any of that? No, no. I, I enjoy the music, but I've never been a, to any of the concerts, to be honest with you. Well, I'll tell you Which that. is surprising. You still got I, life I, have, I don't know how many years they're still going to be at their original thing. I know our community will live forever. But if there's an opportunity where one of their events, whether it's the Big Dead and Company or one of the smaller ones, is ever in your area, 
you owe yourself to go there once and just see what this vibe is. You know, I know that you know other deadheads, you know that it exists. Oh, yeah. And even, you know, because I, it was on your show. Wasn't Gracie on Did your you, show? Curly, Grace? I don't know. Yeah. Her first You name, just interviewed uh, the girl that is in Curly Michigan Baker. That, huh? Curly Baker is what she, her handle is Pearly Baker. I believe. Well, she, uh, well, she has like third something organics or I don't know. But oh, that was inspirational to me because she was like a younger generation. She came on the show oh, and in the first Michigan sentence, Wildflower. Yeah. She said, well, I'm a grateful dad. I'm deadhead fan and whatever. And I thought like that, that brought a big smile to my eye. Like I, I didn't know her. I DM'd her and said, yeah, I'm just an old deadhead, but you really inspired me to, because like, you should go back. Just like in growing, uh, and I Bakers care about too. the younger growers, like I do. Like I, I, I'll help anybody, right? And the dead thing, it's the same thing. Like my generation, the other generation, and the next generation. And so, yeah, in my closest deadhead family right now, a couple, my closest friends. They never saw Jerry. They're only like 30 years old, but they're just as down as I was. It's just that they're in a different time. Right. And so even for myself, when I got into it, the future was bright. Like Jerry, like people today to commit enough that they're young and they go, yeah, no, I'm a deadhead. When it's over, Jerry, like we're, we're definitely like not as, you know, the music is not what it was and, you know, whatever. And the world's not what it was. But to me, in a world where everyone it's a culture. Is, is so, that's the point. It is a culture. And, and as a head that when Jerry died, I thought that was it. Like, it would just fade off. And no, it, it, like, we're going to live here forever. Like, we're like one of the world's cultures. And we're actually deep and worldwide. And like there's a little sticker that you see around deadhead shit called says we are everywhere. It's been around for like 30 so, years. And, and I'm most back proud and of watch. that. And I know it, you, because I've, I've met yeah. a few I've, uh, brought a uh, captain 420. Hey, I remember seeing him on here. He, he was some guy in Thailand and sort of mentioned something about dead. Next thing you know, I hit him up like, yeah, dude, I'll put you on the list. Come on out. And man, he came out here. Hey, at first, I didn't really like, yeah, a lot of people say, sure. But then he booked his flight, told me when he was coming. And, and uh, he, shit, he spent a couple days here and we went everywhere. And this other guy, I haven't, I'm worried about him because he was active here and then he isn't. SoCal, Math, Matthew, Matthew SoCal. Mm. And I don't remember the exact thing, but. Like I was on the weed show and there was a show that night and I had an extra ticket on the list or whatever. And I put it in the chat room. Like anyone want to go? And then he hit me up. He lived a little ways from here and we meet at the park and ride. And I'm like, great. I didn't even, we didn't, didn't even come up. Get to park and ride. He said, oh, can you give me a hand with my chair? I'm like, all right, sure. Yeah. He's fully handicapped. Right. So great. To be honest, like, even though I got, I'm on the list and, you know, have our own VIP set up. 
you add a handicap to it, yeah, you no know more lines, you know, come on in. What do you guys need? You know, they 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 do a lot, especially in California for the uh what do they call it, the uh handicap. There's an initial sport. But and I somewhere I have a picture and Captain 420's on one side of me. Dude's fully in a chair. Like I don't think he stood in a long time. They were music was playing and all this, and sure enough. He stands up. Well, he had his arms on, but he was standing up in the show, <laughs> rocking out. And, and it was huge. Like, he was like, dude, I can't even believe that. I felt it in my legs and I, I got up. And uh, yeah, um, that's, what that, that's what it was about. That's, uh, that's what I'm about, like that. And even, you know, I'm friends, good friends now with Mace. Me and Edgar. Yeah, but that's all about the Grateful Dead. See, I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but somebody has me DMing them like two years ago where they were having a problem with him and told, explained it to me. And I went and, and, and looked him up and looked at some of his stuff. And I said to that person, Stay away from that guy. <laughs> I got reminded of that when me and him were posing at some thing we were at, and that person sent me the text from like a year ago where it said, Yeah, but he said, Stay away from that guy, right? But I seen a sparkle in his eye, and I didn't think he would really take me up on it because, oh, I listened to him, he's Mr. Hip Hop, man. He fucking knows every hip hop song and he's into his own music. But I text him out of the blue, didn't know him. I'm like, yeah, hey, I got extra tickets on whatever, come on down. He's like, sure. And, and so first it was just one night. He ended up coming both nights. Oh, he never even, he might've taken some mushrooms. He never took acid. And I had some special acid, that family acid, super clean. And yeah, we're always in the front row. Like we were right up there, front row. And yeah. He went to both shows. Uh, he couldn't go on Halloween because he had to trick or treat with his kids. But uh, I see it. I don't know if other people, other people might too. It's Jay. Like, dude, I showed him the light. <laughs> he got it. So like, he he got it. He was there. He he like got it. He saw that. He saw what it was about. And now that will always be with him. Whether he goes to a bunch more shows, whatever. Oh no, he's got it. And that's what, when I said to you, yeah, if there's ever comes around Michigan, I, that's not one of our hot spots. And, but we've gone up there. I've been in Michigan for dead shows way back, but you know, New York city and me down there is a little more of them, <laughs> but you get anywhere near any of those things before it's over and it's gone and it's done, do yourself a favor and just go check in on that energy. Because there's a good energy there and, and it goes along with community. Like we're a much stronger community with, with, with acceptance to everybody and how everybody is. Where cannabis is all divided. Oh, I'm living soil. I'm this. I'm Michigan. I'm Colorado. I'm this. I'm corporate. I'm this. Where we, we have brain surgeons to this, to that, to whoops. We call them whoops, you know. Right. But in my life, I've seen the whoop 
go through his phase as that guy and then, you know, grow up and all that. And that's in any community, that's part of it as generations go, because if this is really a community, well, in your use of, you're already an example of that. What Lexi is her name? Yeah. My daughter. Your daughter? Yeah. Like, yeah. like I'm generational. I don't have kids. Right. But I'm generational. Right. And if I had kids, I would, I wouldn't hide any of this from them. I would hope that they would carry this on. And even with the legacy growers up north, and now we have generations, right? That's just like in Grateful Dead, we have generations. Uh, cannabis has that, but we haven't officially been out of the closet as a, as a group for more than 10 years, really. Prohibition still like, you know, keeps us from, I mean, that is one of the things that I'd have to say was a, what do you call it? Uh, I didn't really hide it. If someone confronted me, whatever, but like coming out of the closet and it was at the same time, like, you know, the gays had that and then different groups had similar things. But for cannabis people, I don't know what, how many years ago it was. For me, it was longer because our state's a little ahead of a lot of the country. Um, it was like coming out of the closet where I'm, I no longer have like, I have no shame in it. I, I, I don't care who knows. I, you know, um, I lived for so long where, yeah, I never had shame personally, but like, I can remember like, it was like, I need to know. And I used to make up stories about like what we did or whatever. I, I that, that was terrible, you know? So that was a liberating well, thing. We could change. We could get down a whole nother episode with the, the psychedelics road there. God, and I again, didn't even show a, you. I have like, I have chunks of DMT and DMT vaporizers and different fucking, I got so much good shit. Hey, oh. that's sometimes why I might be weird online. Cause you, I, I might be just coming down from a DMT hit when I text something. Cause I'm one of those guys. <laughs> if I feel like taking a hit, I do. <laughs> so so like, a couple look, of fun wait, things here for you just to, just to uh, put it out there this is where i normally sit most of my time and so oh we never got to all the jabs i don't actually make fresh frozen but my friend has a cooperation and then we got this came straight from the frog there's only a little in there and then this wait this is a dmt vapor pen you don't really get too too far out there in that. This is like this year's good stuff from Tor. And oh, there's mushrooms in case I feel like that. And then usually so, so I'm always buddy, ready for that. <laughs> you 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 love this then because again, I've, I, it's a wonder that I never did get into the to the dead stuff because I've always been kind of into the psychedelics as well wow. but you inspired us i actually something told me to take a little bit of uh, mushrooms this evening and then in early on in chat it just everybody had that vibe and dosed up well like i'm i'm what they call in, I'm like <laughs> in the episode 
I'm Mary Prankster. You know what I'm saying? I'm Mary Prankster and I'm a psychedelic warrior. And yeah, I, I'm all, I, I, well, I left this out, but my job for BT was I blottered the acid. Like he would come basically with the grams and I would do the process to put it on paper. Well, there's no way, there's not even a way to tell you how high you get when you do that. I don't care what mask and gloves and every precaution you take. Um, yeah. I'm so high that I, don't, like I'm high. It's not a matter of flashback or not flashback. Like, yeah, I, I, I'm, if I decide to take something, that's a little extra on top of whatever, but I, it's hard to explain. Like, yeah, I've, I've, I've been out there a long time. <laughs> I like you, man. We, I, I tell you, this has been a genuinely well, good day. Hey, be honest. I don't know if I ever get my ass to Michigan, but if you ever want to come out to SoCal, man, I'll show you all around. I may take you up on that, man. It's I know so it's easy for, it's really for hard sure. for growers. <laughs> it's really hard for growers to even get away for more than like two days, you know, but we didn't get into a lot of my methodology, but yeah, for a long time, I'm able to, I'm able to, my, as lame as my setup might be, I can top everything off and come back in like four or five days and everything will be fine. And, uh, that's that's oh i'm stressed and anytime i'm traveling and, and and i'm trying to have fun wherever i'm at and i have i have my 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 team and uh like the truth is for me to travel cost whatever it cost me in the town plus whatever it cost me to be out of town because one thing favors only go so far you might ask a friend to do a favor can you feed my dogs or can you do this well, when you, if you really want people, you got to pay them. Just a piece of advice out there. And me, yeah, I follow that rule. I, and it enables you a lot more freedom. I, I, and like I'm one of these people that don't think there's any excuse. Like I hear people complain about not having money to do things, but they know how, if you know how to grow wheat, because anytime I wanted anything, I just thought, well, I got to grow more weed and then I can, and then I can get it. So not many things you learn in life, like, like how to grow money on trees in like 60 to 70 days. I mean, there's not many other things like that. And if you're gifted enough to, to learn how to do this or been taught how to do it or on your way to learning how to do it, and something I also like totally blows my mind because I've never, I have this little tent I do my babies in, but I've never grown in tents. I've always had room, but man, I, I've seen tents in the last two years where I'm like so impressed that, that they're so, so dialed in and like maximize everything so much. And yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, yeah, I remember when you first taught somebody, yeah, they, they would usually, well, there was always their first crop, they got lucky. But then their second, third, fourth, they would have to learn the ropes. 
But today it seems like people skip all that and like come in strong and never look back. And uh, yeah, that's all the, most of the people that uh, I see on here are intense and yeah, they kick ass. Like I was actually, cause I have extra rooms and they, I was thinking, man, maybe I should try to put a tent and see what I could do out of just one tent, three by three. <laughs> cause it's kind of like a challenge to maximize, you know, like I don't have to maximize. If I miss a little, there's, well, I'm at scale enough to where, oh, well, right. But if you're not and you have to make it, make it, it, it count out of every square inch. Yeah. And, and efficiency and all these, these things like, so I, yeah, I appreciate all that. Other people have that like down way better than I do, you know? Cause like, yeah, I, I, I don't do that very well. Efficiency which I am ultimately an environmentalist. So it's hard to be so, and that's why the regenerative and soil thing is appealing to me. Even you, 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 I guess adopted it somewhat, but in an indoor production thing, mm, there's pros and cons and I can't quite get to the, the pros outweigh the con to bring soil inside. And, uh, but outside there's no question, but that's, that's just, you know, I, I've learned one thing in this, like methods is great, but like everybody has their own environment and their own thing. And so not one method is good for everybody. And sometimes they're like, I, I, like I said earlier, I think that the, that the living soil people are pushed too much. And a lot of that's backed by their environmentalist. You can't argue with that. But I think for sometimes new growers should probably do a bunch of different things, not just go, oh, I'm just going to stick to this. And, and well, it just, and one last thing when we come to the product, right? First off, when I buy and spend money on products, and I know which products are crap and shouldn't be even in the store and i know what products are good um i'm buying convenience for one thing and that's worth what it's worth to you but when we really boil it down and look at the ingredients we're both chasing the same minerals the same basic thing and and most of the products in, in a hydro store are like the cadillacs in the rolls royces of stuff they're not using crap that's why they cost so much now there's some exceptions to that rule but we're basically like getting the same thing just different ways and and it's not like like even the word synthetic like uh, that's not so sure you know the periodic table of elements and archaic and we don't have the time to go into all that, but me personally doesn't think there should be a divide there and, and definitely not one that people are disparaged for using products. Like even the, the term salt growers, I think, I think most people might 
not be smart enough to not think it's sodium and salt. But the actual word particularly means soluble minerals in, in the way it's used. And, and um, but somehow in Chad in different places, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been disparaged for like, no, it's all fun and games. I don't take any of it serious, but like, I, I have a feeling there's a lot more salt growers out there that keep their mouth shut on chat and stuff because, yeah, you, you there's a certain group of people that 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 dominate the community that are all about living soil, and I know for a fact that that is like one of the smaller segments of people that grow most people grow with some form of hydro <coughs> and if this is a community of cannabis then that should be equally represented and um like there's that's where so much can be learned and people like talking to each other and saying yeah i used this product but didn't do anything oh i, I like this one and there's a lot but but like I find it hard and oh, I thought, well, maybe there's a different channel that's more geared to that or show not so much, you know, and I watch every living soil show and all the different stuff. I keep learning and, and all that. I'm great, but uh, yeah, salt growers unite or whatever. I think first off, I don't like being called a salt grower and I don't like being called synthetics. I, I don't know what else to call us, but a bottle whatever it's weird that i feel that way but somehow two years of, of being part of this thing a little bit i guess yeah that's my gripe that salt growers are are disparaged <laughs> do, do you hear what i'm saying at all do you hear do you, do you agree with that at all I think, yeah, because like everybody can, you know, I know my opinions are just mine and I take in what I take in, but I just wondering if you hear what I'm saying at all. Well, I think a lot of it, to be honest, or to be super, super honest with you, buddy, is um, I think there's a lot of it that we want it to be in the right thing. And then in a lot of things, you know, it does teach uh good sustainability good stewardmanship and i like to see that you know what i mean but uh let's look at it in a different light in a creator's mindset here um could you really do a weekly salt show oh i think you'd be so surprised like i remember on the you know, forums man they're like, first off, like we, we see all the growth in technology and the concepts and ideas. In this week we're health. talking like more flex. and more, pro like you know? people bring in like really <laughs> deep, deep science and stuff. And I know just from what salt has made to even calling it salt. I could like, first off, yeah, there are products you could say, well, that's obviously a salt that's like grow more powdered or. Well, they're all salts because even if there's water mixed, it's I, I give why it's called salt. But even at this point, that term has been so disparaged that like 
if you call, I don't know, hydro. Okay, call hydro. That's like, that's what, like, if I had to describe, I'd say I'm hydro, right? Um, yeah, and there's, there's like 10, di- lots of different ways to skin that cat. And there's been tremendous technology advancements and science advancements and understanding of different ratios and, and, cutting edge stuff and some of these companies that are so disparaged like gh gh literally had its own r&d department and spent millions and millions of dollars over the years trying to make the best product and some with some of those other companies and um yeah i they they're you know and they're if there was real honest discussion, there would be some products and some some of these things that, that couldn't sustain the truth and wouldn't no longer be on the shelf because they're bullshit and they're selling bullshit, right? And some, a few of those become like what soil people point to as, as like the joke oh, well, you pay whatever for nothing. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, there's been a lot of those hustles along the way. But if you've been in this a long time, you, you, I don't listen to that noise. My best friend ran the biggest store in this area until he just sold it to Growmore for all these years. And I was his guinea pig. When he was back before Hawthorne and all that, and more independent, if he was going to carry something or something, yep. And I wasn't the type you can give a, a little little sample to. Like if I was going to tell you anything about a park, I'd have to run it enough to do that. And I did that on a lot of stuff. And 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 part of my thing, I, I use weird terminology, but I call it the poor rate, right? Like example, I love full power. I believe in Dr. Faust. I don't understand why he has a $40 gallon that needs a 20 mil per gallon pour rate. Like he's in control of the concentration of it, right? Most products are like one mil to a couple mil per gallon, right? You get what I mean about the pour rate? So once you fill in 50 gallon reservoirs or 100 gallon reservoirs, and multiple ones of them okay but when you're making five gallons of water i guess 20 mil a gallon isn't that big a deal to you but when you're making a bunch of water you go gong 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 when you realize and now maybe some of these products you cannot concentrate them without having lockup and different problems but i'm not even sure of that and most things can be concentrated meaning Laundry detergent and some other household products did this a few years ago. We're, it's happened, so we're used to it now. But it used to be a thing of laundry detergent. It was a giant-ass thing that did 64 loads. Now they sell you this little bottle that does 64 loads, right? Because shipping, package, time, all the water in it, whatever. Hydrovision needs to do the same thing, especially some companies if they want to stay in this game. Because uh, some of those companies like have poor rates that are like you you kidding me you want me to go gong 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 
right? And other companies, oh, are at one or two mils and great products. So, you know, that's my like little uh, gripe on that, like over the years. But ultimately, and maybe the word flew by, convenience. Okay, and what's that worth to you, right? And oh, I've thought about all this. It would be great to do some KNF stuff. If I make any wrong steps throughout the year around my house and property, especially in the summer, I will attract ants and mice like there's no tomorrow. So I've learned, oh, yeah, keep the counters clean. Do this, do that. Oh, I have 20 acres, so I could put the KNF buckets of sugar way oh you can't seal them because they need to breathe so so how are you going to keep all that critters coming okay so then i'm like yeah like that doesn't sound like now same i used barley i heard on coop i i grounded it up like he said i top dressed and mixed it in when i made these beds i've been growing out outdoor different level in that same area for years i live around squirrels and the groundhog whatever these things are out there rabbits the whole thing they were existing around they never messed with my cannabis never well i put that put that uh barley in my soil and then for the next it just take a couple days i start going out there and i'd see holes burrowed and and yeah, they, they found the barley, even though it was like crushed up or uh, blended. And holy shit. When I changed Mr. the Bush. fence to keep them out, they tunneled in. So then, as much as barley was like good and might work in a whole bunch of other people's place, it wasn't something I could use because of my environment. It created a problem. So, you know, that's all I'm saying is like, Mm, and everybody and a lot of people are, are telling you what they do in Humboldt, which is like a jungle of forest. Well, that's not going to work in some arid, dry place or, you know, like different things. So there's, like I say, everyone has to like find what works their way. And the only way you can do that is try all the ways, not be pinned into one way. And that's it. Yes, buddy, we'll end it there. Yes, okay. we have to. What's you've heard of you've like? heard of a filly, you've heard of a filibuster. This is almost a bladderbuster episode. <laughs> None of my friends that know me are, are surprised at all because this is yeah, this has been me, and and I'm glad we did this Love one, it, on though, one because as much as I'd like to be like part of a lot of panels and stuff, and I have to practice and I hope people can just tell me to shut up or whatever, but I found that it's hard for me, especially in this format to like with the lag and everything to not just, there's a dead song called smokestack. Oh no, no, no. Uh, the, but one of the lines Jerry says is don't dominate the rap Jack, unless you got something new to say. Okay. And there's more lines, but like, yeah, I, I'm probably a guy that needs to listen to that song more because I have a tendency to dominate the rap, Jack. So, you know, uh, one thing before we go, I wanted, because you said you, you caught another uh, deadhead uh, on the show. 
But there's another one, uh, Miss Pearly Baker. She was uh, about a month or a month and a half back. She oh, came I saw that. And told her. Did you? She there's was been a, a fellow deadhead. There's a few. There's a few. And even in this, like, I, even amongst my friends, I call a lot of people I see on here five-year wonders. Okay. Right. I don't know exactly, but a lot of them seem like they haven't grown for more than five years. Right. And sometimes when I hear five-year wonder, even if they are right and they're telling me some information, when you've been going for 33 years, it's sometimes hard to like listen to somebody, you know, like a rookie, right? It's the same thing in dead world, right? Even though we try not to make it that way. Oh, how many shows have you gone to? How many years? There's like this hierarchy because of that, right? Right? <laughs> how, oh, how, you know, that's just human nature, right? But I do see this weird similarity that like humans have this like, yeah, like, like sometimes I've met young deadheads where they, when all of a sudden I'm nice and invite them in the circle, they're like, yeah, you know, it's weird. Like we felt like distant, you know, other older people like didn't weren't friendly to us and stuff and i and 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 that's kind of like relates in cannabis too you know like like even my friends that think i'm crazy for watching all this it's because they think they know like they don't they they're not interested in learning anything they know what they know and they're they're good there and i i can appreciate that right it's not like they don't do other things so but um, I also appreciate, like, I try to appreciate everything ultimately, you know, and not, not be, um, I have a saying I like to say a lot, don't have contempt prior to investigation. And it's really easy to, to fall into that. But okay, soundbite, even though I don't have any idea because I can't see it. D zombie was 601, and that makes me 602, which isn't a prime number, but um, are you ready? Uh, I will be wait right now. Tell me the thing you want me to say the day that I'm talking to you, 602, me, and do I say tune in or what is it? It's what's the Basically, point of this one? What I'm looking what I'm looking for in my version would be, hey, this is Eagle, and I'm on fucking talking shit with Eagle, episode 602. You can put whatever you want before or right, after, as long as that's got it in there. Got it. I am ready. This is Buddy Kilowatt on episode 602, talking shit with Eagle. Please enjoy the show. We most certainly did. We most certainly did. Uh, the same Zoom link that I sent you this evening is the, the your link for the Weed Nerd World. Uh, it would be an honor to have you pop in anytime you see yeah. fit, my friend. I'll so. be popping in because, wait, there's a few people on your show. Wait, this is with Robert Green fingers right he's a reg right? well yeah smiley so Anybody, Cal, it's a, oh smiley it, it's I, a free I, for I, all yeah. i talked with smiley in dms for a while but 
SoCal down here. Now, now, one last thing. Yep, I'm a bleeding heart liberal. I'm definitely 100% Democrat. I have no problem wearing a mask. I had no problem with vaccine. I had no problem showing my paperwork to get into a show. So a lot of the political stuff, yeah, I'm, I'm way over here, but that's, you know, that's, that's just me. I, I, that's the thing around here is, you know, your, your opinion is, should, is and should be respected. You know, well, that's I what mean. I love about your show. I, I, yeah, I'm glad. I mean, I always knew if I was ever going to do a new show, your this format, this was the spot, and it happened. And I'm glad for it, and I appreciate it. And we never got into all the. I've realized over the weeks, and I was going to turn this around and ask you a few questions, like D did last night, because I didn't know you were at the Chihuahuas. I'm definitely about my experience with chihuahuas and you drink coffee all the time and other than just you being a deadhead we had a lot of things in common i've 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 learned oh there is so much so much off camera we could talk about (laughs) well it's weird for me to say oh like have this uh what do you call it uh uh virtual friends and stuff it's like like even when i met captain 420 and actually met people yeah there's a big difference when you well it's great start here but yeah but some of us have circumstances and are so far apart that we might never actually meet and this is but that doesn't mean like i've learned that you can have friends and care and actually invest like a real friendship in the social media i guess i don't even know what we call this shit anymore it changes but you know i've been kind of maybe hesitant or have i don't know what to think about all this i mean i definitely hate facebook but i like instagram but instagram's owned by facebook and you know goes it just goes endless and even just one last thing like yeah I guess rules are meant for breaking, but and my old school rules would have prohibited me ever from like talking. My wife would never have said this was a good idea. Right. Um, but I'm glad I did. I'm glad you did. And I'm so well, glad you did. Yeah. And in the future, when we're on show, like, yeah, somehow if I, I'll get off here and think I somehow didn't represent Sabrina strong enough, but that's something that I always feel. And man, I wish there was a way I can encapsulate her to share like really what 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 she was all about and what a loss Tensil's lost. But uh um brother, that's a funny yeah. it's kind of a you don't have to. Every time you have spoken her name or thought about her this evening, well, you have you almost know, you think it will broken get better into over tears. And that, to doesn't. me, says I don't know what an amazing person she was. Because I keep the urine here and I keep the candles going. Or if I'm supposed to like do something more to 
to move, but I don't want to move on. And <laughs> it's complicated, and it, and I thought the trial would change things, and it doesn't does, and it doesn't, and and sometimes and this is just as we go on as friends here. Yeah, sometimes I might just be in a mood, and a lot of it has nothing to do with anybody else but that shit. But sometimes, like I'm in a good mood right now, but sometimes it. The, the the angrier side or the shittier side surfaces because of it because I don't know I've, I, I'm working on it I read some books and you know the one thing I'm, I, I'm most proud of and if you're ever in this situation it's the most important thing you cannot hate the person that did it you, you have to like void them out because if you end up like I have friends that hate this guy and it like gives me weird energy because I, he's like void to me. And that was because I read about this issue in a book that the DA gave me, but it's like the most important thing. Cause I've read testimonials of people that spent 20, 30 years dying inside, hating the person. And then that is like double the, you know, they win more. And somehow I went through trial, went through everything. And it's like the weirdest thing. Like, yeah, I bring up her name, tears come to my eyes. Nothing. I have zero feeling. Like, I don't hate on him. I don't wish, I don't care. Doesn't matter. Like, he's nothing to me. Even when he was in court and I was like, like, you know, maybe one night I'll tell you, you know, I had the last word. Can you imagine that? at the sentencing. It's called the victim impact statement. And they wanted me to write it all out and turn it in. And I had problems preparing it. And like days beforehand, I told the DA, I'm just going to wing it. She said, I don't suggest that. Well, man, I knocked it out the park. We'll save that story for another time. But like, I brought the whole yeah, I, I don't know where it came from, but I said in the timing and the way I did it, I, uh, yeah, I, well, that's what that is for, the victim impact statement. You're supposed to be able to, and I did never, I never even referenced, like, I, yeah, I'll, I'll tell that story another time and we'll be up for another hour. Man, you are, uh, and my I, girlfriend, my girlfriend, Nina, I told her I'd be busy for a couple hours and I can see her on my little thing from Dubai or she's in Abu Dhabi by wondering what the hell. <laughs> like even I told her it could well, be three or four hours and she said three or four hours? What could you talk about for three or four hours? <laughs> this has been, I'm telling you, I, I, I'm very grateful, very grateful for this night. Well, as actually, a lot of people. there's been people on here that told their story that made me feel exactly that. I, I've heard some of the greatest stories in the last couple of years in, uh, on this show and in this format and a few others. Like, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of like, yeah, we're a cast of characters, aren't we? Yes, we are. And that's what makes this thing so awesome. And that's how it's done every day. There's so many stories worth hearing, and this is most Well, and I know you struggle 
with day to day and I've seen you go through different phases where, you know, with the show and all this. And I hope that our experience here tonight gives you a, a boost for a little while. You already want a boost. Uh, it seems like in the last few days, you know, with the changes and the new, new ideas and new plans. So I, I'm proud of all that. And that was great to hear. And I, I hope that I, uh, brought some energy to to it all too. You most certainly have, and I hope you continue to, man. I hope uh, you do uh, take that invite to hang out more often because I think you'll be a perfect fit and a great asset to what goes on here. Yeah, to be honest with you. So, with that being said, man. We do have to get out of here. I just want to say to those people who watch them, if you're just catching this, this is most certainly worth starting from the beginning. And those of you who watch this whole thing, please share this episode because this has been a great episode and needs this this story should be here. So with that being said, I can't thank you enough, buddy. Kilowatt I can't thank you. And we'll me. see you. I'm, I'm, I'm sure this is the beginning of a long friendship, buddy. And everyone in chat and everybody so. that hears this, all the power, all the love, all the good energy, that's what it's about. And some good dank weed. Oh, yeah. Matter of fact, I've been so, I think I rolled one joint. I smoked like in this period of time, this is probably the least amount of weed I've smoked in this period of time in a long time. Like if I was just sitting here, I would at least smoke three joints and I really only smoked like three quarters of one. (laughs) But it's a good one. But I'm going to roll one up and, uh, Return my 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 messages and calls. Thank you, Eagle. Bye. Thank, thank you. You have a good night. And for the rest of you guys, thank you for turning in. Join me tonight when my uh, guest will be manifest uh, dot uh, gardens. Greatly appreciate it. You guys know the deal. Random acts of kindness do save lives. I'm not afraid to say I've been an example of that quite a few times. With that being said, I love you guys. Thank you, buddy. Kilowatt for one super amazing night. With that being said, don't forget to do something nice for somebody. I am out of here.